We're going to get started. I want to welcome Lou here today. Hi, it's been a long time, Hi. Lou. <laughs> Miss you. And of course, I was back. <laughs> um, but um, I guess we have a lot on our plates. Just want to tell everybody um, Michelle came down with um, COVID. Oh my God. So she's home. Mm -hmm. She said that um, I just texted her, her that she was having muscle pains, but that's gone away. Mm -hmm. She just has a sore throat. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Michelle yeah. is such, you can't hold, hold can't hold a good woman down. You nope. can't hold her. She's always doing something. She was just in India. Now she was just in North Carolina. I mean, slow down. <laughs> but, um, she could have gotten infected there, and then her her system could have been a little weak for, because of all she's doing. But she'll be okay. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, we miss her. I mean, I really do. A lot to talk about. <laughs> um, so we have a lot on our plate this, this morning. We are going to get again to the introduction. Uh, I think, uh, who, who was it? That talked about uh, oh oh it was Kathy, uh, you know Angela Davis mm -hmm. when she was in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what even uh, you know this. You know Angela was uh, doing a PhD in in Germany in Frankfurt, uh, no? in Frankfurt yes under Theodore Adorno, mm -hmm. and uh, I think she only completed her master's degree because she wanted to come back to the United States because of the struggle. Mm -hmm. But she had a uh, class where they were reading, I think Hegel and Kant probably. And that was really the thing back then in the 60s in Germany. It seems that um, it's not so much the case today. And in fact, you know, you know the guy Dane from University Dane of Chicago? He, he, he just graduated from University of Chicago with a degree in philosophy. And he told me that um, um, a lot of German students come to the United States to study Kant and Hegel and come to the University of Chicago because it's felt that it's more seriously studied here. I find that very interesting, but not unusual. And, and actually, I, I would say that the University of Chicago would be the place for the reason that Harold Bloom was there mm -hmm. and the University of Chicago, uh, even, you know, in its formative times, was always a great books place. Uh, and I think that still continues. I don't, I don't know it to be completely true, but Angela, and Kathy brought this out in her in her autobiography, said that in this course, <laughs> that um, 
in her course, they only got up to 20 pages of the introduction and we've already made it past 30. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Kathy said, well, we're not that far behind. Um, and Hegel is, is not an easy read by any means and so on. But so we're going to get back into the introduction, but also um, we want to talk about a few other things. One, the murders in Buffalo. Uh, we want to talk about uh, the Kendrick Lamar album, a CD that was just released. And we want to just have a, an update on the Azadi reading group uh, and what's happening with the year of Indian independence. And maybe, are we ready to give a report on the 10th anniversary? You want to say something? Okay, we'll say something about that too. And then um, that'll give us at least an hour and a half, if not more, to read the introduction. Uh, by the way, you know, I think we have a very serious grasp of what Hegel is doing, although we don't know all of the ins and outs. Uh, and it is a complicated work because, you know, like anything he's addressing, his contemporaries uh, as he is putting forward his own system. Uh, so we'll, uh, I don't think we should feel in any way that uh, we have not uh, made some serious, uh, how, how would you say, serious advances. Um, and I think the fact that we know philosophy yeah better than we did and we take philosophy seriously and we see its connection to science, to Du Bois, and that'll get us to the uh, year uh, anniversary. Um, <laughs> Excuse my being distracted. <laughs> yeah, it's very nice, man. Yeah. <laughs> As they say, you're welcome. <laughs> okay, uh, the uh, ten, the ten people that were killed last Saturday. Right. I know after free school. You know, I heard this on the news, and I just couldn't immediately make sense of it. What? You know? So it turns out this young white guy went into a supermarket where he knew there would be a lot of Black people in <laughs> Buffalo's Black community, and using an AR-15 uh, systematically and uh, deliberately killed as many people as he could. Yeah. Yeah, these 10 people, as was the case with the nine worshipers at Mother, uh, I think it's Mother AME Church mm -hmm. in Charleston, South Carolina. This happened about six years ago. Uh, and it, these are martyrs. And we have to see them that way in this struggle. Um, Clearly, young man that carried it out, 
is mentally ill. I don't think we can in any way diminish that. That there is, and this is not unusual, I mean, it's widespread in this society, people who feel threatened uh, by everybody, you know, and often if somebody says on the internet, well, blacks are trying to replace you, or blacks this or blacks that, you know, um, they take that in and thus blacks become the visible enemy, you know. Uh, in India, it's what they call communal violence, you know. But in the larger sense, this is a society tearing itself apart. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and as I tried to find an explanation, you know, I went always going back to Martin Luther King Jr., mm -hmm. who understands tragedy and. Um, suffering mm -hmm. uh, perhaps better than any public figure in American history. And I was thinking about his sermon at the funeral for the four girls killed mm -hmm. in the Birmingham church bombing in 1963. And uh, King would always seek out the ways for healing mm -hmm. and to bring people together. This is very important that um, we not, and I, I think we're all, none of us here will do this. We cannot adopt the political line of the ruling elite in the Democratic Party because for them, this is but an opportunity mm -hmm advance a politic. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Let me kind of explain how, how they calculate it. It's very calculated. Mm -hmm. You can see it with the release of the Supreme Court mm -hmm. draft on Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. You could see it in this instance. Mm -hmm. And each time Biden becomes a symbol of resistance. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. Biden has the representative of resistance. What they're trying and what they set up is this narrative that black people are under attack by white racists. And we, the Democratic Party, are protecting you from the racist. Therefore, when it comes time to vote, <clears throat> vote for us because we're your only defense against a racist onslaught represented of course by Donald Trump and the Republican party. Um, this of course, as everybody here knows is so disingenuous and such a lie and such a fraud, uh, and it's all drama and political theater. 
what is exposed if we compare Martin Luther King and Joe Biden's approach or the Democratic Party's approach? And it could be Joe Biden, it could be Kamala Harris, it could be any of the Democrats in the Congress. It's the same thing because it's all politics, it's all a political calculation. The Democratic Party does not want to heal the nation. Martin Luther King, even, and you, I can't, I, I don't know, um, the bombing of that church carried a kind of uh, sadness and trauma uh, across the Black community and beyond even more than this, because there is nobody to stand up and explain this and, and so on. Uh, Martin Luther King called for healing the nation and moving forward. And what this meant uh, and who is responsible for it. And he never said that all white people are responsible for this. Uh, frankly, there is, there are two diametrically opposed theories of race at work here. The woke theory of race that, you know, we're all being fed all the time as progressive and, and so on. And Martin Luther King's theory of race, that race does not, racial differences or differences themselves should not prevent the people from uniting for progress, for change. Well, this was Gandhi. This is the Gandhian heritage or contribution to the civil rights movement. Um, ahimsa, you know, uh, and that was King, but not Biden. Two different approaches, radically different. So the question is, why one, the King approach, and why Biden approach? And I think it's obvious from what they're saying. Uh, this is a huge tragedy. The nation is not treating it as a tragedy. It was a one day affair. Mm -hmm. Now let's get back to the business of war. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Uh, it's not, there's no reflection. Uh, and, and of course, this also exposes what the so-called Black Lives Matter of 2020 was all about. If tens of millions of people we're told by the New York Times can march because one man was killed. Mm -hmm. And why isn't there one march when 10 people are killed? Yeah. Black Lives Matter is nowhere to be found, which means that the Black Lives Matter was a wing of the Democratic Party mm -hmm. and of the establishment, mm -hmm. no matter what people thought. And this is the cynicism of it all, you know, that the ruling class, the attempt at regime stabilization, and that's what the 2020 election was about, regime stabilization to take back 
the government from the disruptors, the Trump people and others. And so they knew from Hillary's election in 2016 that they could not win using the normal means of elections and political parties, that they needed this vast movement which could claim a moral, uh, that it was a moral campaign and that Biden was, a, was supporting a moral movement like the civil rights movement. I, you know, I, I know I keep saying this over and over again when I talk to y'all, this, well, I, I'm not gonna say it again. That is not, that was not, could not be a civil rights movement. One, you didn't know who the leaders were. Number two, you never found out where the money came from. And number three, you have to ask the question, why did it end a month and a half before the election? <laughs> you know, so you're done what you did, you know, you understand my point. Um, but this is, this is a deep tragedy. It is one of those tragedies that if it is not grieved properly, and it will not be, mm -hmm. uh, if we, if the nation and the elite kick this issue, the can down the street, it will only make the, uh, as they say, reckoning even more difficult when it is reckoned because people want to know what caused this, who are these people? Just don't tell me, well, this is replacement theory. Well, what is replacement theory and who is behind it? Right. You know, let's talk about it, you know? Um, and, and well, you get the point. Um, but I think contrary to Joe Biden and the Democrats, and, and believe me, all of this is about regime stabilization. To stabilize the regime by any means possible. And to then, of course, corral what is called the left, inverted commas, you know, to the side of the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, Emily and I talk about this quite a bit because she works in a union and that kind of fake trade unionism, uh, and we have to call it out, um, that uh, has nothing in common with the type of trade unionism of a Martin Luther King. And nothing in common with it. Martin Luther King was talking about organizing the unorganized. These people are not talking about that. They're talking about, quote, get out the vote for their chosen candidates. Um, but one thing I, I would say, and I, I, I hope it is, I've been saying this, I, and I don't know if everybody would agree with me, the nation is less racist today than it was 50 years ago. White America, not there. Well, I'll put parentheses, Black America ain't all the way there. Believe me. White America, while not where the nation has to be, 
is not where it was 50 years ago. The nation is less racist. Now, what that means uh, has, you know, has to be interpreted because if it is less racist, then you will proceed in a way differently than if you thought the nation is more racist. Mm -hmm. You said, take for example, um, a settler colonialist theory. The assumption of settler colonialist theory in the 1619 project is that the nation is more racist today than it was 50 years ago. Matter of fact, their claim is that the nation, the races are not just racist, but now they are fascists and Nazis. So we're closer to Nazism, you know, kicking at the door, you know, kind of represented by the January 6th thing. And this is all a ruling class narrative. And it's so fake. The nation, yes, the ruling class is probably more fascist and authoritarian today than they were 50 years ago. There was more freedom of speech even under McCarthyism and the Cold War than today. You know? uh, which you know, I guess when we talk about Kendrick Lamar and so on, that'll play into it. You know, this control of all of the instruments of thought of speech, of knowledge, you know, is unprecedented. The prison industrial complex, the uh, national security state, this huge set of institutions designed to monitor and uh, to disrupt people's movements. The news media, I mean, the New York Times today, compared to 40, 50 years ago, this is a fraud. It's not even a good journalism anymore. You know, even when you had three stations, but not with all of this 24-7 cable and stuff, you got better news. That didn't mean, you know, you still needed Muhammad Speaks to really know what was going on <laughs> or the people's world or the daily world. You know, you needed these alternative, the Guardian, you needed these alternative sources. But from the standpoint of the ruling class, this is a far more authoritarian, if you want to call it fascist. I mean, even Goebbels and Hitler had, could never have imagined this type of control. You see what I'm saying? So this is from the standpoint of the ruling class fighting to hold on to power, to stabilize the regime as it were. They will go to any lengths. Um, now, but the country is less racist. It's not where it must be, but it's not what it was. And it's not more racist than it was. It's less so. Um, these things have been measured by social scientists, sociologists over decades. And that's what the social research shows. You know, um, you know just anecdotally, 
you know, if you went back uh, 50 years ago, there was a sharp divide between white music and black music. Of course, there's still a difference, but white music is more like black music than it's ever been. White people, even I think sometimes more than black people, want to go back and you know, black white musicians. I mean, really, I was listening to this um, uh, Colorado uh, Colorado jazz, jazz repertory orchestra. It's worth listening to. It's a big band. I don't know if anybody big band. By big band, I mean um, four trumpets, uh, four or five trombones, five saxophonists you know, then pianos and keyboards. And I mean, that's a big band. That's a lot of sound, man. Uh, and who are they playing? Earth, Wind and Fire, Stevie Wonder. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and this, uh, this recognition of the great achievement of black music and black art, that wasn't the case some years ago. Uh, the fact that even the ruling classes had to concede uh, to more black images in movies. I'm not, I'm not happy with all of it, but white people are not knee in a knee-jerk way rejecting black images, black music, and so on. Um, okay, so it's now this means that the possibilities of united struggle, especially in this crisis, and especially this economic crisis. And, you know, they keep saying inflation went down by two tenths of 1%. It's now 8.3% over last year. But don't try to buy gas or milk and don't try to get baby formula. You know, this is where the economy meets the average person. Um, this type of crisis has huge political consequences because it will unite people. Um, and it is uniting people. Uh, whatever your race is, when you drive up to the gas pump, and you have to pay $5, $6 a, the anger, the anger is the same. And people, I think more than any other time, recognize a ruling class. See, when they attack Biden, and this is the thing, Biden was the candidate of a united ruling class. Just, I, I've mentioned this before. Chris Hedges is wrong as he can be. He don't know what he's talking about. This is why, you know, sometimes these cats need to take a little vacation, <laughs> you know, because they talk too much. Huh? A paid vacation. Yeah, something, because, you know, they're trying to, to find a way to rationalize their support of Biden. Or we're supporting the less fascist wing of the ruling class. No, you're not. You're supporting the ruling class itself. The ruling class was more united in the 2020 election and are still more united than ever before. And how do you measure these things? Well, you see who's who. 
in these in these ruling class movements in these political campaigns. The other thing, look at who was supporting the war in Iraq. It's almost unanimous among the ruling class. But at the same time, the ruling class and the people are more separated. And that's across the board. You know, I'm reminded of the election last Tuesday here in Philadelphia. There were some wars that had 3% turnout. In other words, 97% of the people didn't even turn out. You know, uh, I think the overall turnout was about uh, uh, 19%. But that's, that doesn't tell the whole story is this huge refusal to take part in a system that does not serve them. And people, people know it, people know it. And this unifying of the working class, you know, and it's not rocket science. I mean, you know, uh, you know, you just look at, uh, you go to Butler, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and you look at them and then come to Broad and Erie and say, hey, looks about the same, I mean, you know, to me, and the people act about the same. So the conditions for struggle are greater now than any time that I can remember. The other thing, is that the American people are more anti-war than even during the height of the anti-Vietnam War struggle. Now, isn't that something? You know, if you just went off the top, you know, basic assumption, oh, the anti-Vietnam War movement was the greatest anti-war movement in our history and so on and so forth. I would say that's not the case. This is the greatest anti-war pushback probably in the history of the country. Let's not get it confused. The United States is at war. Proxy war using Ukrainians, but the US is at war. It's a dangerous situation, very dangerous because these, the US is saying we ain't going to lose again. And this is a regime change war against Russia. This is horrible. But the American, well, let's take, you know, in that bill, um, you know, for $40 billion which will take the total up to something like 56 billion in two months to Ukraine. 57 congressmen in the House of Representatives voted against it. They were all Republicans, you know? Uh, and 11 senators did. Whatever their reasons, because everybody said, well, they did this because it's anti-Biden, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Whatever the reason, objectively, it constitutes 
a vote against war, or at least a vote against funding a war. And as the government moves to increase the funding, and they will because they can't lose, that number might increase if it gets to the point of sending troops or quote advisors into Ukraine, the opposition might even grow stronger. We cannot be blind to this. So my point is great dangers, great dangers. I mean, during Vietnam, there was no threat of a confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union or the United States and China over Vietnam. That was not on the table, you know. But this one is a possibility. And the other thing is, you know, uh, Biden is now in Asia, you know, under the guise of containing China. And, you know, I'm just trying to figure out, now, how do you do that? <laughs> how do you, you, you're going to contain China, the second largest economy in the world, probably the second most powerful military in the world, you know? So what is that going to take? And, well, you, you get the point. Uh, I, I guess I, I'll just end on this one. I guess what we have to say, this is a ruling class completely out of control. You know what I'm saying? And the people must speak. And we cannot be distracted. Uh, so, so I'll just stop there. Maybe some people want to say certain things. Uh, we're not on the cusp of race war. That you know, there, there is no indication of it. Um, and, and, you know, I kind of get my reading of Black folk, how, how they sense things, horrified and outraged at this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, really. But they have not decided that now we have to do to them what they just did to us. No one says that, you know. Um, and, you know, uh, the history, Black history is always this kind of seeking healing. That's rooted in Black Christianity. Seek healing, mm -hmm. you know, seek a way out of this tragedy. That's just the way black folk think. Now that's not every black person, but generally that's the way black people approach these things, always have, you know? Um, so I'll stop there. <laughs> thank God, I'm sorry. Thank, I love, okay. thank God that um, King had spoke to, you know, all these different generations. Mm -hmm. and, it, and for me, it's still sounding that we're not, I'm reacting to the horror, but we but we've been pulverized with all the horror, and they won't address that. But 
right. and they can't address it without even mentioning King, not King, but his his living message. Not he died, and he's not. We're not aware of his thoughts and his feelings, and and so as the uh, so as the Gandhi, but so as with a lot of world people that concern about young people, you know, not going out having a suicidal path. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, um, so I was looking at Biden's trip to Asia. <laughs> Apparently he's going to, I guess, South Korea, Japan, and meeting with a bunch of leaders and things. But uh, what I wanted to say was, uh, uh, so oh, yeah, what well, firstly uh, about this uh, Buffalo, uh, you know, massacre, mm -hmm. uh, I saw on uh, social media, although I haven't confirmed it myself, that. And so others correct me if they have more information, but that the um, shooter had been, I think he had worn or been associated with symbols uh, that are part of the Azov Battalion in Ukraine. Oh, really? the, the Azov Battalion is like the neo-Nazi battalion in Ukraine that the, the U.S. is funding. That's uh, sorry, where do you have, do you know? Well, yeah, there is, there's photographs of the shooter with the Black Sun insignia, which is, I think, a broad Nazi symbol, um, but it's one that is also featured in the Azov symbolism and stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, it's a possibility somewhere, um, maybe speculating that, because we've seen this pattern before, particularly like with the war on terror, you see the US for a long time developed and funded all these like uh, Islamic fundamentalist groups to destabilize uh, governments in the third world. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, what the CIA would call quote unquote blowback, where those same groups would do attacks within the United States. And then that would be justifications for war, but also for, you know, like cracking down on citizens' rights and so on, and justifying a foreign and domestic war mm -hmm. on terror. And mm -hmm. Some are arguing maybe there's parallels with this thing of arguing we have, we're now uh, facing a white nationalist domestic war on white terror, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that's just, that's something that you can't discount at least, but we'll, I guess we'll have more information on that mm -hmm. later. But the other thing is uh, on this point of, uh, uh, yeah, so you were, are, you were saying that you feel that US society, particularly white America, I'm assuming you're also saying, mm -hmm. is less racist now than it was, you know, 50, 60 years ago during the civil rights era. Um, and so what I wanted, I was thinking as you're saying that is, should we differentiate between American society, American people being less racist versus the U.S. state, absolutely, U.S. elite and the state which they control, perhaps being mm -hmm. as racist or more racist mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that it would be an important distinction. Um, and of course, you know, there's a lot of, of reasons one could argue for that. Um, all the things we see, like uh, the, the, the problems uh, facing Black America, some argue are greater, but that's explained not by the average white person being more racist, but the state structure mm -hmm. being more racist mm -hmm. and the elite. And then um, it also brings us to what you were saying about uh, free speech and uh, freedom of thought and so on. I, I actually agree. And one of the things which was uh, kind of crazy was uh, this whole, I, I was talking to Raju the other day, about how in, in the US right now, if you look at the kind of elite debate about foreign policy, like mm -hmm. thinking about the Ukraine war, mm -hmm. one of the people who are arguing for a more dovish, like realist position is Kissinger. <laughs> 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 so what does it tell you that Kissinger 
is more dovish. I, I this sounds crazy saying, quote unquote, more to the left of the current people in power, the current, the, the woke elites, right, who claim to be woke and anti-racist, are more reactionary, more extremist, uh, more warmongering, perhaps than even a person like Kissinger. Uh, who at least believed in, you know, nuclear detente and that sort of thing, diplomacy with uh, with Russia, um, and uh, you know, yet they're hiding behind this guise of uh, wokeism, anti-racism. Uh, so I mean, that's that's just a crazy, it's a crazy thing to imagine. I mean, we have to keep that into context. And uh, it, I just yeah, think, yeah. I think, you know, ideologically, the group, the the state, I, I want the state is more reactionary than it was when Kissinger was a major player in the state. And you can almost attribute it to the ideological forces that have seized the state. And we usually refer to them as neocons. And so when you take a guy like a uh, Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, or Blinken, Secretary of State, they come out of those think tanks and those universities where they were uh, socialized and politically oriented or politically directed towards this neocon uh, world hegemony. Despite the fact that they're supposed to be liberal. Absolutely. Uh, neoliberal. Absolutely. But, but I think also that they- And I think the thing that kind of exposes them, they all trace back to Hillary Clinton. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And that cabal. But the, pre the previous uh, leadership of the state, like in the 70s and 80s and stuff, mm -hmm. they didn't, even in, I guess up to the Bush administration, they didn't have this, they didn't try to give this layering of being woke, being the ancient no. racist, no, no, no. which makes this whole thing even more uh, sinister and cynical. Sinister, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. There's no question. And it makes it difficult for the people to make sense. Right, of it. exactly. And especially mm -hmm. when you can be left right. and still support the war in Ukraine. Right, right. right. Yeah. yeah, go, go ahead. Well, well, just to add, part of the confounding nature of, yeah, like the massacre, but then its connections to Ukraine is. Um, you know, the the manifesto of the Buffalo shooter was directly inspired and also plagiarized from the manifesto of a mass shooter in New Zealand a few years ago. Christchurch. Yeah, Christchurch, who shot up a bunch of uh, Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, but that shooter in New Zealand was, I think he like traveled to Ukraine and trained and learned from the, the Azov guys. Mm -hmm. And even what's what's so incredible about all of this is that you know the media a few years ago in the west they were directly labeling azov as a neo-nazi terrorist group because it wasn't you know like ukraine and russia wasn't directly in the sides of you know this whole conflict but now it's like they basically memory wiped like the population and be like we never said that and now they're praising the azov guys as like the heroes of ukrainian resistance and it's just yeah it's like to what you're saying it's like how do how are people supposed to make sense of this when you're constantly being bombarded with like basically so much lies and so many falsehoods and so many mis misdirections and flips and kind of you know it's yeah it's hard to make sense of of the reality of these things and people don't and there's a very it's very clear that they don't want to draw any connection between the buffalo shooter 
being inspired by the same ideological movement as basically what is the heart of the Ukrainian resistance to Russia. They're the ideological and maybe even physical descendants of uh, Ukrainians who were pro Nazi in World War II. Yeah. And they're heroes as, you know, the people who wanted to genocide Russia, yeah. even Jews. And Theories out there. 
so they could be responsible for the conspiracy theory that is blaming them, you know, to create confusion. Go, go ahead, Emily, and then. I think, I think your um, like introductory remarks are really clarifying in terms of that this was a horrible tragedy, but mm -hmm. when a pe when people are not able or given the opportunity to actually believe and understand what's happening, mm -hmm. but instead you have the real cabal or conspiracy of the New York Times, Time Magazine, literally releasing articles that are trying to use this tragedy for its own gain. Like yeah. the Times literally had a has an article set that says what the Buffalo tragedy has to do with the effort to overturn Roe. You know, like <laughs> you're weaponizing a real tragedy where lives were lost oh, yeah. to try to basically what you're saying, Doc, which is like in a moment like this, it becomes imperative for people and us to not take the line of the ruling class mm -hmm. because that is what they want. They're connecting with Time Magazine, New York Times, the ruling elite media organizations. Like they want you to connect the Buffalo tragedy to Roe v. Wade to basically say white people are backwards. Like the Trump supporters are backwards. Yeah. Because like you're saying, Doc, in this moment, there is a real opportunity for there to be unity. There, like the people have never been more united, have never had more issues to be united around, around war, around like the economy, the fact that they cannot find baby formula, the fact that they cannot pay their gas and get to work. And you need to find ways now to actually, like, it's a desperate attempt to disunite people who are inevitably uniting in this crisis. Um, and I feel like it reminded me of the article you wrote, Doc, about Lenin and Du Bois and what they show about the backwards people. And, yeah, and I think it's related to also like, and I think that is why people like, you know, Lenin and Du Bois matter a lot in this time when there is such a control of even the way people think, the control of knowledge, the control of speech. Um, yeah, it was astounding. Like Alice and I were talking about you know, the fact that the Time Magazine literally is trying to weaponize this tragedy and say like, oh, it's connected to Roe Roe Wade. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like it's time for, like there's a race war happening. There's a war between like the backwards whites and like everyone else, woke, the woke. Yeah, you know, if I could just say to prevent black people from the natural progression of leaving the Democratic Party right, right. and to prevent women from leaving the Democratic Party, right. you know. And that's also why you need, I mean, we'll get into it later, but that's also why you also need to not just do this part of the ideological work or, or like the New York Times is not just saying like, oh, there's a race happening, but then at the same time, why the New York Times and other media outlets are not promoting Kendrick Lamar. Now you need to define, okay, what is black leadership? What is the black proletariat? Oh, Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. <laughs> Let me let Emil come in because we're going we're going to transition right to Kendrick Lamar in a minute and his recent album. Well, I, I like the way you started this conversation, Tony, about giving you know human understanding of the dimensions of what happened, giving the humanity of the people both who were killed and the humanity of the one who ultimately did the tragic mm -hmm. act. Um, and uh, it just makes me think of how the reverse is the case of you know, the media that we are, are given is very dehumanizing mm -hmm. of every possible uh, uh, 
actor in, in the uh, surrounding the event, both within the event. Um, and I just, um, I, I think about how uh, this idea of racism, which I think, you know, ruins lives, you mm -hmm. know, externally and internally, mm -hmm. uh, and creates this, this, um, this impetus or this, this, this moment to become very, uh, or to treat other people as, as if they weren't human. Mm -hmm. um, and I think of how the, the system's ability to adapt. I mean, the system, the reason it's still around is it's very good at adapting uh, the dimensions of how to divide and, and um, get people who, are, who would normally be very well united uh, to see each other as the enemy. Um, and I think also, you know, we consider the, the media and these ruling figures as very uh, unreliable in, in the way they portray things. But I think mm -hmm. it's actually, they are very reliable in, in actually communicating what they actually do believe, both, both themselves and the other. I mean, when I think- And what they want us to believe right. too. Mm -hmm. When Hillary Clinton considers half of the country a basket of deplorables mm -hmm. in that term, mm -hmm. You know, I think of, I think of, you know, in the Bible where it says, um, you know, the, uh, you will know the fullness of one's heart by how they speak, by the words that they use to describe one another. Um, and, uh, you know, just thinking about Nancy Pelosi, I can't remember what verse she was trying to use that she was quoting <laughs> in the Bible <laughs> in Congress when she was trying to explain the rationale for why we need to send missiles to Ukraine. Oh, yeah. um, and it just makes me think of how Jesus would talk about the, the Pharisees and the scribes mm -hmm. of his time and how they would put the Ten Commandments and tablets on their forehead. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, God in the Bible says you need to keep these ideas at the forefront of your mind. Mm -hmm. Completely <laughs> missing exactly what it is. It's actually being communicated there. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I agree with you that, that we are seeing a, a, a consciousness, a rising consciousness of people in this, in this country. And they, they are, certainly are uh, uh, tired of war. That, that is yes. that question mm -hmm. that seems very clear. However, you know, um, as far as organization goes, mm -hmm. I can't. Th I don't think we can say that they're more organized than they were before, mm -hmm. even if the even if the potential is much higher than it was. I mean, maybe can I just? Yeah, sure. That's a very interesting mm -hmm. question. You know, um, having been a part of the anti-Vietnam War movement, it was not a highly organized movement. Mm -hmm. the re I think, in some ways, because the roots of this anti-war sentiment is in communities, yes. you know, working class communities, mm -hmm. disenfranchised. I think it gives it an organic organization mm -hmm. that I don't think we had during the war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't. Because yeah, I, 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 mean, I, I wasn't you. there, so I can't say for sure. Yeah. But I, just, <laughs> I know there I was there. Days. I still can't right, say. Right, right. <laughs> There's moments. Massive amount of people getting together, although it doesn't mean everything, obviously. Yeah. Talking about the BLM. Yeah. There's a lot of factories. I'm sorry, there's a lot of factories where I lived at and where I might have worked in Roxborough mm -hmm. in the neighborhood where I worked where I lived at. I worked in the, I worked in the, in the, in the factory where we made emblems. It was called pen, penology. So it was a lot of young people. And the same thing, it was like a we it was it was something about the unions mm -hmm. and you, you would be a part of the union, longshoremen like your dad, longshoremen. I worked at the waterfront too. But there's a lot of communities had a lot of factories yeah. and, um, and in neighborhoods, I'm telling you. Yeah, Kensington and yeah. Frankfurt and South. It was, it was a lot of industrialists and a lot of young people. We all went to industrialized training vocational schools. Yeah. But but the but um so that organization from the mother and the father going to work and meeting people work, they used to make sweaters yeah. on Lehigh Avenue, okay? Yeah. They, had, they had a lot of um, mills, textile stuff. 
Philadelphia is a pretty elaborate yes. city. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. not to change this conversation. This is the heartbeat, the church of the advocate of this movement that's growing and developing exponentially while we're sitting here, because this would be the consciousness of like the founders of the whole mm -hmm. nation was sitting in Philadelphia 10, 20 blocks from me. Mm -hmm. It's something to, to yeah. situate ourselves yeah. again. Yeah. I, I think I think Emil's make a hell of a point. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, I would just revise what I was saying and say, say that the potential mm -hmm. for a high level of organization exists today that I don't think existed then. Mm -hmm. The other thing was, was heavily a youth movement. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, like youth are like, you know, a herd in cats. Okay. <laughs> I hate that except the youth here. I'm not very familiar with cats. Cats can't be direct. Everybody goes there all the way. But yeah, but I can't what do I say? What the today there's um, more potential for organizing, like that. Because I think it's more grassroots. Yeah. yeah. I know there was one thing I always heard Henry Winston and those say we the grassroots. We have yeah. to bring the grassroots into this. We have to bring the working class. Now the trade union movement was an obstacle. Mm -hmm. Trade union leadership was an mm -hmm. obstacle. Uh, and black leaders. But that's what I meant. So, uh, but yeah. let me let me see. Um, I'm not sure exactly. Though I feel you. I feel what you're saying. Um, and that organization won't be really reliant on the younger generation. No, it will in certain ways. I think. See, the the question <laughs> is, the younger generation cannot do it alone. Yeah. And the idea that uh, when we get to Kendrick Lamar, I think. Uh, Jerry have talked a little bit about this, yeah, that we can do yeah. it, we, that we, we're going to do it because we've been betrayed by earlier generations. Right. Now, let me tell you, every young generation feels that it was betrayed by their parents. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. on every level, uh -huh. you know, not just politically. Course, so, yeah. so it's this sense of, um, of, of we're doing the best. We, see, it's all... Youth can't do it alone no. because the youth need political education. Frankly, as we're saying in the yeah. thing for the yeah. 10th anniversary, yeah. the youth need political and moral education, yeah. you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, but today, I think uh, when you get 57 members of the House of Representatives, yeah. so you, what percentage of, of the 300 and you have, uh, you have 400, so you could say 57 is what percent. I mean, that's a, that, you know, during the war in Vietnam, you could not imagine that if your life depended on And from white districts. And from white, yeah. quote, conservative yeah. districts. Or, you know, the guy, or, or the fact that as Noam Chomsky said, the only major statesman in the West that is challenging this war in Ukraine is Donald Trump. I mean, that's not a surprise for us yeah. in the free school, but, you know, for a lot of people, it's a surprising thing. Yeah, well, you know, on this point, because I think uh, this is actually a good question that Emil raised about mm -hmm. organization, because uh, 
you know, just as we've talked about like the elite and the elites, intellectuals know very little about organically about Black America. I think they also know very little about these, you know, like heartland white areas. You know, for example, it's very significant that these uh, members of the House and also the senators, mm -hmm. they, they represent these predominantly white areas where also the military heavily recruits from. Those are, you know, like these small towns in Georgia and Kentucky and so on. And uh, they're not on the map as it were for, uh, you know, our analysts and journalists and so on. So we don't know a whole lot about what's, what's going on there. And the other thing is, the other thing that came to mind was, uh, you know, the what preceded the January 6th incident, which is when uh, Trump, I think on a weekday, like I think it was a Tuesday, called a rally in right. D.C., of which January 6th was just a fraction, but mm -hmm. most people didn't storm the Capitol. But it was about 300,000 people came. Mm -hmm. So there's some kind of organization yeah, that yeah, brought 300,000 yeah, people from around yeah, the country yeah, to yeah. the um, mm -hmm. Capitol on a, week, on a weekday. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's something there. I mean, I could speculate. I mean, I've read a little bit because you read about what's happened to some of the January 6th uh, people who've been charged and stuff. A lot of them came through churches or through other organizations like that. They organized buses and carpools and so on. Um, so, yeah, that's, I think that's a still a factor. Um, the other thing is uh, we were talking earlier about... Um, how the, the, the media is so cynically twisting this tragedy. And uh, the other thing is they're using it to attack any dissident voice. Like particularly, they've been attacking Tucker Carlson a lot, saying mm -hmm. he's somehow directly to blame for this Buffalo shooting. Mm -hmm. And uh, which, you know, which is also a horrible thing, but the, the, I think the propaganda apparatus is so much stronger than it was in the okay. 60s or 70s and by the way it's not just they're they're reaching the united states they reach around the world Absolutely. it's very strong Absolutely. i mean it's, it's coming out of challenge which is good but it's still you, we have to keep that in mind yeah. um and yeah this whole thing about replacement theory also yeah. i mean i think it's something that has to be investigated because they're talking about it I, I saw tucker did a whole did an episode where he talked about like he he played clips of all these democratic politicians including biden when he was a senator talking about how it's a great thing the demographics of the country will be browner right and like right. you know whites like whites like me won't be a uh, majority anymore it's a great thing mm -hmm. and uh so i mean it makes you ask the question particularly when it comes to immigration like why what is you know i mean I, it, it's not a shocking thing for me that they do believe in some kind of social engineering um, which is also why we criticize the liberal position on immigration and open borders and all that sort of thing right. um to be, i mean and, but also the thing that irony is a lot of immigrants aren't voting yeah. democrat a lot of them are going but so it's you know this is also a, this is all you, you can't let them get away with you know, replacement theory yeah. you know yeah and 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 we can't let them get away with trivializing the fears that people have yeah, yeah. yeah. about yeah. this yeah. And, and, you know, I'm always, in this crisis, I don't know why, I'm always going back to Martin Luther King. And, you know, he was not one who just talked about the problem. Where is their solution? Where is their way, way out? And he always believed, he didn't put it this way, of giving working people a fighting chance. You know, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, as opposed to this, yeah, a lot of people, fear that they're going to lose their jobs and have lost right, their jobs, right, right, right. that they're going to be impoverished. Right, right, right. I mean, that's everywhere, right, right. everywhere. Right. And so 
to trivialize that, yeah, yeah. these people have legitimate fears. And this, I think for us, this ruling class has messed this country up. Mm -hmm. It is responsible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree with you, Emil, on this. Let's 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 point to where the source of this mm -hmm. uh, demise, this civilizational crisis, mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm sorry, Jerry, and then and then oh, Alice, let me let Alice in. Um, I was going to say it also reminds me a lot of of King and how for whichever situation or um, that he was facing of the time. He always brought up this concept of the world house, the beloved mm -hmm. community, yeah. um, the single garment of destiny, because that was the vision and driving how do you heal a society that is um, mm -hmm. plagued with these questions of war, racism, mm -hmm. poverty. Mm -hmm. um, and that's such a deep contrast to what, I guess, what we're calling the ruling elite, the narrative that's being pushed forward of continuing to divide the society. Mm -hmm. And it's how do you? Yep. How do you expect, or right. how is it surprising that events like what had happened in Buffalo are happening when the ruling elite is pushing down this narrative mm -hmm. of to, like, there's a whole segment of society in which you're at the gate, or which are backwards, and are, um, there's no um, like uh, possibility of unity. Yeah. And that's not even a small minority of the population, actually, it's a huge segment that are being left behind. Right. And I think it asks the question, I, I know Doc, you also mentioned before, is, why is this happening? And you would imagine that people like King or people who did see these possibilities were responsible to the people. Mm -hmm. And I think the opposite is true where the ruling elite is totally not responsible for the people in which it's governing or is hoping to govern or seeking to govern. Mm -hmm. um, and it also draws to this um, idea of how is the world also viewing the US? Do they see, I think, for many of us who do care about the American people, but also how we're to build bridges with other countries, mm -hmm. like what? How do countries like China or India or um, like South America think about the U.S.? Do they see the American people as separate from the ruling elite? Mm -hmm. I think there is a hope in that. You know, for some of us, we had read this speech by Song Kim Lang, mm -hmm. and she had talked about um, Western imperialism, mm -hmm. and she had said. Like there is a difference between the like the ruling elite and also the people, and we must remember that even though the policies um, that are being dictated are uh, not uh, revolutionary or for the purposes of freedom um, or even peace in the world, we have to remember that there are people actually that 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 they don't reflect the interests of the people. Um, and then also the piece of like how does a ruling elite that does not represent the interests of the people continue to um, uh, stay in power and continue to push down um, policies that don't reflect the people. And it's that they have to continue to lie. That's right. And that's yeah. what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, we're being fed all these lies, but how long um, can this propaganda continue? Uh, and will people believe it? Will people continue to believe this lie? I think our stance is that, you know, like at some point it's going to break, right. that we won't accept the lies that are being told. And actually, we have to bring back the tradition that we have studied, which is King, which is Gandhi, which is all of these different figures that actually sought, actually had a vision that was for the people. Oh, yeah. I also wanted to mention 
a few things, but one of which was that I think over the same weekend as the Buffalo shooting, there was another shooting. Well, there was one in California in a church, in a Taiwanese church. Um, and there was another one in Dallas, actually, where um, I think it was a black guy who shot up a hair salon, but it was, it's, it's actually very personal to me because that's a hair salon that my family goes to in Dallas, um, in like the, like the old Koreatown in that city. And, um, and yeah, I think they're reporting that the shooter, like thankfully no one was killed. They were just, there were just a few people injured. Um, but the shooter reportedly, um, yeah, was also motivated by a kind of fear of Asian people. Yeah, yeah. And um, you, yeah. Know, see, this is why, oh, it, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't no, mean to no, you're yeah. absolutely yeah. right. And, and I wanted to say that, look, people are alienated, alone, uh, and, and that, you know, and the environment also produces schizophrenic yeah. behavior, yeah. schizophrenia. Right. It's not just all the individual and something went wrong with right. his brain or whatever. Right. 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 It is a, that is why the question, that's why King is needed more than ever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I'm sorry to mean to cut no, you no, off. Yeah, that, that's exactly you see it all over New York, pushing mm -hmm. Chinese people on the, off the uh, platform of the train, you know. Yeah. This is affecting broad swaths mm -hmm. of the American society. All the violent cultural stuff. All the like violent. Video games. Yeah, all that, yeah. Music. But then war. War, yeah, of course, yeah. the root of it all, yeah. That's why, you know, Biden goes up to Buffalo and he's all this, that, and the other. And then now let's get back to the real business war. Right. Yeah. Well, in a way, culturally, if you're not addressing that question, you're reinforcing. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. And you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. You're a hypocrite. I think that's part of why his poll numbers are declining, because people see him as a hypocrite. The two, two quick things also that I wanted to say were that um, I think similar to the headline that Emily mentioned, Rolling Stone read a headline after the Buffalo shooting that said, the Buffalo shooter is a normal Republican. Yeah. He's just an ordinary Republican. And I think especially to make that statement after those, the only source of dissent to the Ukraine <coughs> war funding bill was from the Republican party, like that is sending a very strong message. I think particularly, yeah, to black people that if you basically, if you take an anti-war position that you're siding with the Buffalo, like the, yeah, the Buffalo shooter, which is, yeah. And, and then one quick thing also about, yeah, like also with what Jahan was saying about replacement theory, I think it's just been so strange to hear the media talk about this as like a conspiracy theory amongst like these white radicals when I feel like, I don't know if I, this is just my perception of things, but I feel like for people who, especially I think young people who kind of go through liberal institutions or woke institutions, there's a very broad like baseline assumption or hope that as the country becomes less white, that'll become more liberal and more democratic. Big D. Everyone thinks that. You don't even have to say it. that that is the common assumption. And yes, it's also, I think even like, you know, at the, the Korea Vietnam event, when Brandon described 
you know, how the ruling class produced this class of refugees for the express purpose of making them, you know, manipulate, like able to be easily manipulated and controlled. Um, I think it's very clear that, like, first of all, there is a broad understanding amongst the democratic, like elites, and also many people who are like very, you know, they align with the, the democratic party, that they, you know, for many years have wanted there to be more immigration, as, as John was saying, because it will create a greater <coughs> voter base for the Democratic Party. And it's just insane to me now that now they're saying like, oh, this is a conspiracy theory. Right. When actually it was just Tucker was reporting mm -hmm. that the Democrats were saying these things. Right. And Tucker was the one who was like, actually, you know, they think this and this is their agenda, but it's not going to work because many of you know Hispanic immigrants are going to vote Trump. Mm -hmm. And so they're the ones who are wrong. It's just, it's insane to me that, you know, they're turning this around and making it something which is, you know, yeah, it's a conspiracy which has been created by the white, you know, like this sort of white fascist movement when it's like, no, like you've been, you've been the ones who've been saying this the whole time. And you've been boasting and cheering about it like this whole time that yeah, demographics is destiny. Like as we, as we immigrate, like we bring in more immigrants will create a greater voter base. And so, yeah, just like the level of hypocrisy and like the, yeah, the line yeah. is And, and they incredible. always were clear going back, you know, when they first were coming forward with this neoliberal globalization, they were always very straightforward. This is a way to lower the wages yeah, of yeah. American workers. Yeah. Hey, you don't want to accept uh, GM's terms, well, we'll move the plant down to Mexico right, right, right. or to China. And then, oh, you still don't want to accept us? Well, we're going to open the borders and bring in people who don't have citizenship right. rights and therefore cannot fight. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, it was always, and, and they succeeded in it. Mm -hmm. And now there's this pushback. But you know, one of the things I, I constantly remember from Brandon's presentation and both the words and the spirit of it is that he was saying they want to groom us mm -hmm. to be morally and ideologically indifferent. Yeah. And he's, and Brandon is brilliant in understanding this. And the first step to that is to create a hostility towards African-Americans. That's the way you get it. You know, now you're not gonna be white, especially Cambodians and Vietnamese, except for a couple, but, but we're going to make you or, or give you the psychological and ideological conditions to be hostile to black people. And not just to individuals, but to the whole history of black struggle. And that's, I, well, go, ahead, go ahead, Emily. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Yeah, I want to add to what Jeremiah think also John mentioned at some point. Coming on this schizophrenia that's that's like really rampant about like connecting these you know white terrorists to the conservative um the camp of, of, of the Republican Army and such. I was recently reading this recent article that Glenn Greenwald wrote. And you know, I think it was a it was an informative article because it talks about like a number of these other, um, you know, previous white terrorists who actually you know in public they pledged their allegiance to the, to you know the Democratic Party and 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 you know to these shows by you know Rachel Meadow and Democracy Now and so on and such. And he makes the point that you know even though we have seen several other, um, I mean, clearly ex extremely mentally ill people shooting up in the name of ideology, 
there has never been this attempt to to tie ideologies to to you know the most extreme proponents of such even though the 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 you know the victims of the shooting were the same as 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 you know the class that is portrayed by you know certain kinds of stories and 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 certain camps of politicians or or even mainstream media but i think yeah so so you know i mean in 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 terms of how uh the reach of mainstream media is in the rest of the world and how these shootings are portrayed in the rest of the world i think there is i mean the i the impression that i've always had and you know most people outside and most people inside this country also do in academia especially that in this i think the the idea is that the shooters and you know these mass shootings they um um i mean they're all part of this homogeneous identity and and they are always you know camped along with the white races and such and such i mean the fact that there exists this dichotomy is not at all shown and i was thinking as I, as i was reading the article that you know, i i do remember reading about the 2017 shooting at dc but when that was portrayed in in all kinds of mainstream media it it was it, it was really shown in the same light the fact that you know this person had like you know publicly about claims about you know how the republicans are the worst things that happened to this country none of this was made public so, and the fact that you know this is all of this this you know is coming out now from from like very few sources mm-hmm. seems to show that you know there is a like you know, there are big sources which are attempting to hide these realities and try to portray it as a homogeneous ideology when clearly you know there are different that's right you know kind of ex- 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 extremists going with different ideologies so the question is are you attacking the shooter or are you attacking certain ideologies yes sorry so yeah yeah don't don't ignore yeah i think what you were saying about like pain and the wound and the like the desire to heal versus basically just joking about war and country is really deep because i was reading the speech that king gave it was a sermon in 1966 and it's just called living under the tensions of modern life. Mm-hmm. And so he is describing the tension. He says like modern life is characterized by endless tensions. Modern, Speak up a little bit, not so fast. Modern life is characterized by endless tensions. On all levels of life men are experiencing disruption and conflict, self-destruction and meaninglessness. And if we turn our eyes around our nation, we discover that the psychopathic wards of our hospitals are filled today. Fear and anxiety have risen to the throne of modern life. and very few persons escape the influence of their powerful domination it is probably true to say that we live today in one of the most if not the most frustrated generations of all human history now what accounts for this tension this anxiety this confusion so characteristic of modern life what is the causal basis for all the tensions in our modern world i'll say if we are to find the cause we must look for more than one and it's a plurality of causes that have all conjoined to make for the tensions of our generation and so he describes that like the tension that comes from like the competitive struggle to make a living so basically like the economy like jobs like basically pitting people against each other which is i think what you were saying with immigration and like the yeah like the joblessness of like the white working class now and how that is like built to basically stoke tension and then tension also grows out of the whole of modern urbanization and the industrial structure of modern life like big cities large populations and you're meant to feel lost in the crowd um like you're a cog in an industrial machine and then man becomes depersonalized mm-hmm. and then he says and then there's a tension that results from the fear of accompanying a war torn world 
Um, like we find ourselves today standing amid the threat of war at every hand, and we often wonder what will happen. We feel at times that the future is uncertain, and we look out and feel that the future is shrouded with impenetrable obscurity, that we don't know how things will turn out. Um, every young man that grows up in this world has to face the fact that he just doesn't know how the future will turn out because there's the endless round of preparing for war. Yeah. We know that we stand today at any moment to be plunged across the abyss of atomic destruction. And all of that causes us to fear and live in tension and agony, wondering how things will turn out. This is a part of the general fear and tension and anxiety of modern life. And then he says, there's the tension that comes as a result of man's general finite situation, like being a non-being. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, like it's just, it's really incredible because I feel like you can see the whole structure that we're in today. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and then he talks about basically that you need religion. Like you need, you need God, you need the third dimension of life. Like when you're saying like, oh, you need to have a sky, like a proper moral education or the capacity to accept yourself, to accept reality, but also to basically try to change it. Um, like he says, like, you need to accept yourself because you can't, you, it's dangerous to repress your emotions. Um, and so we must do something else, not repress, but sublimate. That's another big psychological word that we use in the modern world sublimation but religion gives you the art of sublimation and so you don't repress your emotions you mm -hmm. substitute the positive for the negative of repression mm -hmm. you sublimate instead of repressing and that is what religion gives us when we go into christ like sublation i mean i feel like it is kind of like you're <laughs> actually like creatively yeah. generating something instead of regressing or just trying to shove things He's down talking about the black church yeah right? and that's mm -hmm. the role of the black church yeah. to give a sky mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying yeah uh, it's, kind, it's kind of clear what uh, yeah i was going to say that uh, this conversation is also remind me reminding me of baldwin because I remember uh, in our in, in the reading group that we uh, have uh, with Nandita and Raju and all of us uh, about the Indian struggle, at some point we turned to Baldwin because we thought it was important to not just understand the struggle against imperialism, but also to understand the white man. And when I say the white man, I mean the ruling elite, not the working class struggling white American. But I think this is one of the struggles for our times to be able to describe to people in South Asia when we when we're doing this kind of reading groups, so many different reading groups based on this one idea that we have to learn from our history on, you know, yeah. we have to learn from our history how to wage this struggle against imperialism. But what is the biggest obstacle it seems to us is to be able to actually convince people that this is the condition yeah. here. Nobody wants to, nobody can see it because, you know, it's just like because of all the propaganda and the media, the the crux of the matter is always remains hidden and all, all, all that you see are just manifestations which are not the whole truth. And nobody really understands what, yeah. what, what, you know. I, I can understand it. She's talking about in South Asia, where she tries to explain to her mother, I just came from Kensington wow. and what I saw, and her mother says, no, that couldn't be in America, the richest country in the world. Uh, 
but also in general among the youth when you when you ask them what they think the chief contradictions are what what is it that our fight is for today it's always some sort of something that sprung out of a bigger problem that is imperialism and war it could be in india right now you know the conversation about caste mm-hmm. uh, it could be mm-hmm. anything but it's it could be communalism hindus and muslims fighting against each other mm-hmm. right but these are things that have been weaponized to distract from the main mm-hmm. problem yeah. and so at the and you know this is why baldwin is so important because he really gets to the psych- psychological mm-hmm. basis of the mm-hmm. conflict mm-hmm. um and then once you understand what the where where all of this is stemming from when you understand how you have to look at uh the white man then again you have to come back to king because then he says that okay once you know what the struggle is that you have to wage how you wage the struggle is equally important yeah. i mean you can't do it any just any way because when the pressure when there's so much pressure on you to sort of devolve to your basest instincts you have to rise above that yeah. and you know uh be the best version of yourself and that's i mean what nuri was reading out that also reminded me strongly of that but yeah i just want i just have yeah. that word yeah mm-hmm. well, well, well maybe maybe we can transition to uh Kendrick Lamar's album uh <laughs> i know it's not the easiest Mm-hmm. But to the degree that older problems are overcome, 
they also create the possibility for new obstacles. That would be the dialectic and capitalism, the transformation of a contradiction. We should keep it. We should keep that in mind, or else the, discon the discontents with war and inflation will be captured by just a new capitalist politician. The ruling class can also be united despite openly attacking each other. They can be united in assumptions and in the horizon of politics. The Republicans call Democrats communists, and the Democrats call the Republicans fascists. But they mutually accept that the Republicans are the quote right, and the Democrats are quote left. They mutually accept the horizon of what is possible. Um, and then he had earlier comments about Dane, who mentioned, or, or Dane, who translated one of Angela Davis's seminar papers mm -hmm. that she wrote for Adorno's class, and he shared the link in the comments. Mm -hmm. And he also shared an interview that Platypus did with Angela Davis, um, where she talked about her experience in Frankfurt. Um, also, Cornelius Lockett says, good, good afternoon, tuning into the free school for the first time. Yeah. I, I, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Position of black people and where is it that they're trying to get at? Uh, what is the disposition? And it's not like a situation where I can say one definite, okay. uh, you know, you know, um, thing that generally black people are saying. Though I can say what they want. And I know or I'm feeling of what they want is peace. They don't want any of the violence in homes uh, or in the communities or in general um, and things like that. But it just seems like all the efforts of the Democratic Party are, and to what you're saying, to keep women and Black people in the Democratic Party. And that I'm just really like, like that is just to think about in terms of the level of the crisis in which this country is in. Mm -hmm. um, that also um, kind of line of thinking, like in conjunction with you know white working people, and we're gonna have a conversation soon about culture, mm -hmm. which is a signifier definitely mm -hmm. of interest and positionality, um, but it's just. It's, it's a very, and this, this, is, uh, this is why we need uh, empirical sociology, we need theories, because you're right. And we need to live among the people, which we in the preschool try to do and in their institutions and in their lives. It is, it is a very difficult thing. And as you know, in a lot of ways, the way Black people go will determine the way this nation goes. So I had asked Mamie, just kind of offhandedly, because I was on the phone with Mamie about different stuff, and I had asked her, like, okay, what do you think about the Buffalo shooting? And she was like, yeah, it was just another white, you know, killing Black people. And in passing, again, Similar with the Roe v. Wade, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like a situation where you could really have an argument with, 
Because on a you know. But you know what the argument is. Yeah. The, argu the argument uh -huh. is to the elites, the right. ruling elites. Mm -hmm. Don't you act like right, right. you right. have such a principled opposition to black people being killed right. in prison. Right. Mm -hmm. but the fact that and that's and that's where, mm -hmm. you know, um, for me, the outraged for me mm -hmm. is more than what happened, right. the hypocritical attempt to use it. Against you. Yeah, for base political gain. You know, just yeah. like the, the, the whole thing of Biden going to Buffalo yeah. and then saying, I did my thing there. Now let's get on with the real business yeah. of war. I'm feeling that too. That, and that's, and I, I, you know, I can deal, yeah, this, this young boy and all of the advocates of what they call replacement theory or whatever, mm -hmm. all the white extremist groups, you know, yeah, all of that, but that's a small thing compared to the larger picture. That's that's for him. Because also to that point, it's like, what's really a problem with white people? Because it's like yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But this is this is another question. This is oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm interrupting. Oh, no. I'm sorry, Sarah. No, I mean, it's just a dynamic that I see common, mm -hmm. which is to say, oh, it's better if you are like a little more colored, or you have, or if you're like black and things like that. But it's like, if the if the media, the establishment is using that mm -hmm. against black people, that also squeezes out where white people can be in the struggle. Well, it's using and against black people and against white and people. That's the thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's you know, it's kind of it. Yeah, See, these white elites, they don't, they don't have much feeling for white people either. Mm -hmm. And I'll They're tell you here. this: at this point, mm -hmm. they they might have more contempt for them right. because. Mm -hmm. You know, then they do. I mean, you know, they have a paternalism right. towards right. black. I mean, it's it's a sickening paternalism, and we don't. You know, we as black, so any black person of any backbone don't want. You can't succumb to that. Biden's paternalism. I don't need you to tell me nothing because you signed off on that bill that imprisoned one fourth of the young generation of black men. So so. I'm just saying, you know, um, where's the nation going and where's black people going? You know, we we want, this is why, um, can I just, if you don't mind, if you don't mind, just, you know, when we, we can get to uh, Kendrick in this point, you know, to me, indifference to the great struggle of ideas, is equivalent or goes along with a kind of a moral indifference. Mm -hmm. You know, we are interested in ideas because we want to be on the right side of the ideological struggle. Mm -hmm. Now, if you if you don't if you don't have the, the heart for it, you back away from it, accept the moral condemnation mm -hmm. that goes with it. We we meet here every week, not because we're just driven by ideas in the very narrow sense, but because we have a deep sense of a moral imperative. I mean, I, if, you know, if it were just ideas, uh, you know, uh, we could bring our knitting 
stuff and <laughs> sit around and, and you know and you know meet at somebody's house on Friday night and drink wine and right. talk trash right. if it were just ideas. But if the ideas are not driven by deep see morality is the criteria of the ideas. Yeah, does that yeah. mean I don't know? No, it see, if you what is right in ideas ultimately is what is right morally. What is right morally is what is right for humanity. And if you can, this is what we're talking about, Gandhi and the Indian independence movement. And, you know, poor brother and I, we were just kicking this morning. Say, look at here. We take no prisoners. We take no prisoners when it comes to Indian independence. If you got a problem with it, that's your problem. But in terms of Indian independence and Gandhi, which we're gonna to have to reopen that question again, we got to, you know, this is the issue. The moral issue of our time is connected to the battle of ideas. I, I just want to add, because that it's one, okay, we do take a Christian stance. Absolutely. On questions of one piece, on the questions of our time. Yes. But another thing that I was actually talking to Vegna about over the phone, mm -hmm. and the same thing people are asking me, is like, because I was like drawing parallels between India and America today, because mm -hmm. it seems like, or it feels like, or maybe also from what Vegna has been able to observe when with her being there, mm -hmm. that there's the same or similar dynamics between older people and younger people, um, there's the same forgetting of what's important, like Gandhi and King. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then that got me to the point of saying, well, we need to learn about ourselves again. We need to know ourselves <laughs> Always. and things like that. But Always. That, that's, why, that's why, you know, um, the um, pedagogy, Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right. For this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, how do we educate the people and where that's, do we do it? That's, yeah. That's you, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the distasteful things about the American left, whatever that is, by the way, is that they do not want to educate the masses. Mm -hmm. they, can, they can attack Gandhi so the cows come home. What did Gandhi do? He went among the people and educated them through example, through his words, through his reclaiming the best of Hinduism and Islam in India, Ahimsa. Santagraya. What the hell was he saying that for? All of you experts, you have no idea. Because you have, and, and, and uh, Purva made this point at the meeting, contempt for Gandhi is really contempt for the masses of India. Because the masses of India embraced him. That's what you don't like. So, you know, it, you know, it, this is, this is, you, you can't, just be uh, aloof about this. Once you get engaged, these are moral issues of of, of human life, of children. Yeah. Let's let's keep it even that real. You know, 
this is what when we get well let's go on into Kendrick Lamar. Oh, oh go, go ahead, Al. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm when Serafina was saying how it's important to know yourself because mm -hmm. what Serafina is saying is that knowing yourself means going back to your people and mm -hmm. to know history right. and figures like Gandhi. But that's so different from what we're going to talk about when we talk about Kendrick Lamar because he's also talking about knowing yourself, but it's so different. Yeah. So, <laughs> so different from what Serafina and what we are saying. Okay, wait, um, he's saying where it's like, I think his whole thing is like knowing yourself means like you're retreating into yourself and from people. And that people themselves, like people expect too much of me or like I'm a bee. Well, well, Alice, why don't you open up the conversation? Yeah, okay. and then, should, we, should we read that review? Yeah, you want to read that aloud? Yeah, I'm not against it. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is the review from the New York Times. And it, you know, of course, Kendrick Lamar is celebrated. Uh, and he, you know, he got a, a Pulitzer prize for yeah. one of his art, uh, albums. I thought about it. And yeah, I feel a certain way. Aretha Franklin never got John. No, nobody ever got that, but yeah, okay. So. Yeah, and the infuriating thing is not that they're the ruling classes. Um, not willing to educate, it's also miseducation. Oh, yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, it's the most terrible thing. You, you read this piece and you think to yourself, how can children, like, how can this be passed on to our children? Like, is this really what the future of our children looks like? People oh, retreat yeah. into themselves, yeah. don't know. Back to King, no, the children no will have no sky. Mm -hmm. well, Want to read the review, uh, Jerry? Okay, sure. I can, yeah, I can read a few paragraphs from it. Um, yeah, this is. Why don't you read the whole thing? <laughs> what do you What do you think? Do you think? Well, what do you see as most necessary? Um, well, yeah, really. I don't know. Do you, do you want to read it, Kathy? I could read it if you want. Well, I'm okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just read a few paragraphs and yeah, I don't think all of it. what paragraphs are you going to read? I think just like the, the, the first one, the first ones are good. Um, so yeah, it's written by John Karamanica. Um, and then the title is Kendrick Lamar, Mortal Icon. Uh, no, Mortal Icon. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so it says, Kendrick Lamar has long extracted maximum power from his blend of the interior and the global making him a particular kind of generational superstar, one who shoulders the weight of others. In a few places on Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, the rapper's fifth studio album, he laments from the top of the mountain he spent the last decade climbing. These are depleted, lonely incantations. Quote, I can't please everybody. I choose me, I'm sorry. Ew. <laughs> Lamar, 34, is an astonishing technician a keen observer of black life, a oh. proletarian superhero. <laughs> wow. Actually, slow, slow down, woman. Could you read that? <laughs> Lamar, 34, is an astonishing technician, a keen observer of black life, a proletarian superhero, an artist who reckons with moral weight in his work. Wow. Yeah, that's a very bold. Wow. Yes. Right, bold title to a tribute to. They're trying to replace, displace King and implant people. 
Or even the boys, like sociology. Have you ever heard the term military superhero youth before? I've never heard that. Except for comic book characters. But you say that beginning is bold. Why do you say so, Jeremiah? Well, I mean, I it is, so because, but I want to know your, I mean, your initial reaction is from the, the proletarian superhero part. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, because the, the article, first of all, like it kind of, it takes this trajectory of being like, okay, Kendrick Lamar, proletarian superhero, wow. the man who's been able to bear the weight of the entire world and to wow. channel it into this revolutionary art that represents the, the truth of Black people, mm -hmm. um, of the Black proletariat, essentially. Mm -hmm. You know, then it starts from that, from that uh, assertion, and then it says, in this album, Kendrick is basically, you know, he's at the top of the mountain, um, maybe that's a reference to King yeah. being on the mountaintop. Right. But then from that, this album is him turning inwards and saying, I just need to accept myself as an individual, as a man. Mm -hmm. um, as a mere mortal. As a mere mortal, yeah. <laughs> like we didn't know, but anyway, don't worry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Wait, also, but. visits, one that demands more of everyone who visits, 
but Mr. Morell reveals him to be a titan who is victim who is a victim of idolatry. Could you say a titan? A titan, titan, titan who is a victim of idolatry. Okay. So they're yeah. saying that he is to yeah. come to the, the fact that people have idolized him. Mm -hmm. right, right, um, right. Lamar knows that in truth, no one is a hero and maybe no one should be. He is just a man. Allow him that. Ew, like, <laughs> 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 like they're trying to degrade. It's like yeah. you degrade all black men, first of all. And then say there's no. Uh, yeah, no. And then, I don't know. It's just it's yeah. a lot of yeah. He's a writer. I love you. But, well, read the paragraph about the song about his father. Oh, this begins with family, and two of the most moving songs on the album deal with Lamar's parents. On Father Time, he details how his father raised him to be unforgiving of himself and to bury his insecurities, his uncertainties. Quote, men should never know, men should never show feelings, be sensi being sensitive never helps. His mama died. I asked him why he going back to work so soon. His reply was, son, that's life. The bill's got no silver spoon. Um, yeah, and then it, there's the song about his mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mother I Sober, which is the song title, um, which, feature, which features sagging vocals from Beth Gibbons of Portishead, traverses domestic abuse and Lamar's frustration at his own childhood inaction but then telescopes out to his own failing, his own failings in the form of infidelity. Hearing Lamar apparently confess to this kind of infinite disloyalty is part of an immolation of the ethical persona he's cultivated for years. Um, yeah, and then also, yeah, then the next paragraph, he goes even further on We Cry Together, an outlandish tit for tat about a profoundly broken relationship with the role of his partner vividly speak wrapped by the act of Taylor Page. The song pulses with a startlingly raw toxicity, even if construed as character. It is also perhaps perversely one of the most musically successful songs on the album, a shuddering alignment of rhythm and sentiment. And then, uh, I, I guess I'm just reading this article. But <laughs> the, the opposite is true of Auntie Diaries in which Lamar raps about two people close to him who come out as transgender. He does this in an earnest but clunky way. There is misgendering and there is dead manning. And his retelling of childhood of and then his retelling of childhood ignorance, he invokes and repeats a homophobic slur several times. These are faux pas, and in, and so is this airless rose production. It is astonishingly uncommitted as it is apathetic. Um, and actually, yeah, that was interesting because basically the critique or the reviewer was saying that this song is bad because it's not woke enough. Yeah, I also just seem like I felt like a lot of this article was going for like, you know, oh, you've fallen a little from the pedestal we put you on. But maybe that's also almost trying to justify the hypocrisy of wokeness. Because I feel like he is kind of like a woke king. Because I remember I first really heard of him because he was singing on he was rapping on the Black Panther. And that was like a really big moment. And then so I feel like he's very like woke. And then it seems like what He's saying, or what the reviewer is saying in the no. article, it's not that he's not woken up. I feel like because the reviewer ultimately still really respects him as an artist. Basically, right. says like this is progress. Like, isn't that no, part no, where he literally right. says like, um, okay, yeah, it's so he's saying, um, 
Sorry, I'm just going to read it. Lamar is a rare popular musician who received almost universal acclaim, not only artistically, but often as a kind of paragon of virtue. But there are all sorts of complexities and heteroticities that are suffocated by uncomplicated embrace. So they're saying that we should complicatedly embrace him. Um, Mr. Morale appears to be a corrective for that. It's an album that aims to repel, or if not quite that, then at least is at peace with alienating some of its audience. It's also a reminder of how rare it is these days to encounter popular music with unstable politics and a gut punch. With listen. unstable. Yeah, so it's saying like basically like he's not consistent all the time. Like basically that it's too hard to be perfect, but like he's still woke. And I think, yeah, I don't know. I think my feeling was that like ultimately they, like his position is so secure as like the progressive rapper of the ruling elite that even if he basically says like oh maybe it's not all that i'm not perfect it's not great like mm. they still are willing to go with it um and like yeah well, i think i think the point of this article but also kendrick lamar why this specific album is being promoted mm -hmm. is because actually i remember kendrick lamar back in 2008 or when he first came out with his uh. mixtapes he but even people, know. the woke people, like the or the pre-woke who became the woke, the, the pre-woke pre who became woke, woke back then, they didn't like him. <laughs> the pre-woke, oh, the, pre -woke. the people who became didn't like Kendrick Lamar because they asked him, "Are you going to vote for Obama?" And Kendrick Lamar said, "Why would I vote when voting doesn't like when basically he was basically he was like, why should I vote?" when this government doesn't do anything. But now this album, I think, is Kendrick Lamar basically letting himself be weaponized because then he got so much, he was so ostracized in 2008 that he's, oh. he corrected his position in 2012 and said, I'm going to vote for Obama. And he was even invited to the White House and like yeah. played basketball with Barack. And the trans thing is also because in the past, Kendrick Lamar would make statements saying like, this doesn't, he's basically saying, well, this is not really a black thing, like a black issue. But now he's saying, oh, let me personally see now, like I'm making progress. Like, and the, but the point of this, the reason why this album is so dangerous is because like Kendrick Lamar was held up as a virtuous figure because people thought he represented a genuine, yeah. a genuine yeah. black yeah. figure. Yeah. But yeah. now Kendrick Lamar is saying like, I don't want to be anyone's hero. There should be no universal standard of yeah. goodness, rightness, yeah. Yeah. righteousness, truth. Like I'm just a human being. So even, so now this whole album is about how like, oh, everyone's complicated. Like no one should be yeah. a hero. We right. should not look for heroes. Like the point of life is just to be go inwards and be your genuine self. Like right. you know, your Emily, can I ask you a question? Why do you think the reviewer refers to Kendrick Lamar as a proletarian superhero? Since the, I, I would say that the reviewer is against heroizing anybody. I mean, why? And and of course, I you know the reviewer may be as confused as Kendrick Lamar, <laughs> or more confused. Yeah, I mean, it is a confusing statement, but it's yeah, coming yeah. from an ideology that's accepted this premise that we are in the postmodern age and there is no truth. So the greatest truth there could be is this muddled composition that we see. Um, and the heroes we have are extremely you know convoluted and have their own contradictions. And people have contradictions to oh, yeah. true things. But to try to highlight these people and basically break the idea of their being a hero, a, a real, genuine, 
uh, articulation of what people need. I mean, it's like taking the stars from the, from the sky, you know, this idea also in, in art in general, this idea of um, removing oneself, really actually I, I see it as removing our humanity from our art to, to like distill it uh, in this very um, sterile way that we can't touch the major contradictions of society today uh, we could we can only talk about like yeah our own retreated um, kind mm -hmm. of um, pessimistic and, and self-righteous truth um, but it really makes me again think of this this poem that I was talking about last week and I actually <laughs> like to read it's a short poem if you guys oh, yeah, it. Um, because it talks about this and, and Kendrick Lamar is you know as much as they want to say he might not be someone to aspire to he's an extremely successful artist in society oh, yeah. he's a millionaire yeah. he can do whatever he wants yeah. and these are the these are the these are the um these are the awards we give people who don't want to touch uh what what's going on in society i was actually talking to Jahan about um the figure norman finkelstein who mm -hmm. i consider to be a hero in our time and he lives in an apartment by himself and he has nothing he can barely keep a living it sounds like he doesn't have much of a, a stable environment and that's you know but anyway this is um this is a poem by uh uh ingeborg bachman it's called every day uh, she's she's an austrian poet um, she's speaking about the realities of society that she sees war all around even if war isn't directly happening uh, in the in the here and now um she says war is no longer declared only continued the monstrous has become every day. The hero stays far, say stays away from battle. The weak have gone to the front. The uniform of the day is patience. It's metal, the pitiful star of hope above the heart. The medal is awarded when nothing more happens, when the artillery falls silent, when the enemy has grown invisible and the shadow of eternal armament covers the sky. It is awarded for desertion of the flag for bravery in the face of friends, for the betrayal of unworthy secrets and the disregard of every command. Um, so I mean, a lot of people maybe can see that as a dark, a dark poem. Obviously, she's talking about very serious. And what does she write to? Uh, I believe this is after World War II. This is like the 60s, mm -hmm. 70s, I think. Um, and um, like she actually took the, uh, the wording that's used to give medals to um, heroes of war and kind of reverse them, you know, like this, this um, for bravery in the face of friends, mm -hmm. kind of bravery is that, you know, uh, desertion of the flag, you know, um, disregard of every command. Like there's an idea that we, that, you know, our values aren't all the same, you know, this imperial values that we're given aren't necessarily the same as some other commands we might have that we need to disregard in order to become a Kendrick Lamar, in order to become a LeBron James, in order to become, mm -hmm. you know, these figures that we hold up. Mm -hmm. You know, we have we have different values, yeah. um, and we need to recognize that. <laughs> yeah. um, Go ahead, Sherry. <laughs> well, Anna, you always have something to say. <laughs> well, I think. It, yeah, the the review and the album reminded me of what um, Ken and Ivy had said at the church events, where she said that hip hop is not an art form that is able to transcend. And basically, it seems like the reviewer is interpreting Kendrick Lamar as admitting a hip hop as an art form cannot transcend. Now, the question is, what did Ken and Ivy mean? by the word transcend. Mm -hmm. How does she understand transcendence? Yeah. Like to go 
to rather than being well this is how i understood it was that hip-hop like she was saying that hip-hop is concerned with primarily you know the results of oppression of degradation mm -hmm. of the destruction of black communities mm -hmm. and all of that but it's not able to provide a way out of that and instead is stuck in the wallowing of things are so terrible in the black community mm -hmm. and therefore we're just going to keep repeating that things are terrible and give different ways of showing how terrible it is. And I feel like, yeah, basically Kendrick Lamar, who has been held up as the leading artist of this generation, who is able to mm -hmm. give a voice to, you know, the socially conscious issues of our time. Like that was definitely how I, how he was presented to me, like in high school and in college. Mm -hmm. and why I think I like gravitated towards like his music in, in high school and stuff because it's presented as basically the most radical and the most progressive art that is currently being produced in America and to have it be positioned in that way and Kendrick is also I guess very aware like self-aware that like people are holding it up he's basically saying like yeah, we can't go any further. The best I can do now is just retreat inwards and talk about my personal trauma mm -hmm. and talk about how messed up like our communities are. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like there was the song I think that I've seen, <laughs> one of the songs that I've seen get the most attention online is the one where it's a, it's a replaying of an argument between a man and a woman, a couple. And basically it's just like, you know, we were talking about this on the bus, but part of the appeal of, of hip hop and someone like Kendrick too, you know, especially like the like liberal college educated um, kind of young people is that, you know, it appears to provide a truthful window into black life, yeah. which is what the yeah. reviewer is also saying that he's the best, most skilled like portrayer of black life in America today. And, um, and it's not, it's like, it's a misrepresentation. It's, uh, it's an affirmation actually of many of the things that people assume are, are wrong with black people because it's basically just showing how like this man and woman are so angry at each other and they keep insulting each other and then like spoiler alert they end up having sex afterwards after this whole tirade of like basically like yelling at each other and it's like yeah it's basically Kendrick is saying like oh isn't it so ironic that like this is how black people you know like black men and women relate to each other but that's what people are interpreting as like, wow, like Kendrick is so real. He's showing the real life of, you know, ordinary black people, which otherwise I wouldn't be able to access because I'm not part of that world. Um, you don't want to be. Yeah. And you should actually look in the mirror, actually, yeah. because you know how your music is going to be used. How can you make this music and let it be released knowing that there will be all these people thinking that you are speaking to black people? Well, I... You know, the more we talk about it, the more you all talk, the clearer it's becoming to me. I understand now what they mean, proletarian superhero, because this album, Kendrick is trying to brand himself as the everyman, you know, and to be, so this album is different than the others because he's not trying to put himself at the top of the hip hop hierarchy. Mm -hmm. He's already achieved that. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to rebrand as mm -hmm. the everyman, mm -hmm. the proletarian mm -hmm. hero, yeah. and so on. Well, let me just make another point. You see, this, this gets, as you know, Black people have produced the greatest art in American history. There's no two ways about it. Um, 
and this has come out of the struggle of black people, mm -hmm. the engagement of the artist with his and her people. Mm -hmm. I don't care whether it's Billie Holiday, Ma Rainey, um, mm -hmm. Mahalia, Teresa, mm -hmm. Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. There was never a question, never a question mm -hmm. that they all would sacrifice money and fame to serve the people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There was no two ways about it. Um, and the music reflects that. They were not attempting, most of them, to cross over and to get rich. Um, and they knew that their art was the greatest art this country had ever seen, that it could transform this country, and that the world recognized it. They were, you know, all of them were just uh, excited always to go to Asia or Europe. They always were because they said, even though we will not be fully appreciated in our own country, outside of this country, we're fully appreciated. They also knew, and, and, this is, and this is the question of art and the dialectics of art. And I'm, not, I'm really, I'm not making this up at all. They knew that their music was in conversation with the music of the world. You know? mm -hmm. So you get Karuna Supreme, you know, with these great Pakistani artists, mm -hmm. or you get Alice and John Coltrane mm -hmm. engaging with Hinduism, or you get, um, um, yeah, uh, cool. uh, yeah, and yeah. you get the um, Duke Ellington, uh, Paris, yeah, oh yeah, Duke Ellington and his pieces about the eight, what's the ancient city in Persia, Isfahan. Come on now, talking about I'm, I'm going within myself when the whole history of black art and music is to go to the world and to the world house, world humanity, a humanizing, and to learn and to incorporate all of this. So I think this raises a question for me, and this is what I was struggling with when my great friend, Sabrina Sample, sent me this, uh, the, the trailer, and I said to her, as I told you last, I'm not impressed, Sabrina. Uh, the most powerful thing is him sampling Marvin Gaye's I Want You, you know? Uh, and why is, why is he voicing his, and I'll, I'll get to the poetry question in a minute, why is he voicing it, not as a man, a grown man, but as a 15-year-old? But she said to me, because he has a high-pitched voice. And I said, I didn't say it to her, but it's not the high-pitched voice, you know? Uh, there's a way that a 15-year-old adolescent male talks that is not the way a mature man talks, you know? And one of the ways you can know this is that as a grown person, you would not talk to your child in, in the voice of a 15-year-old, you know? There is 
there are generation, generation separation. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the nature of human beings. But, and I'll just, uh, this is the thing, art, this word, you know, you know, now talking, I think talking to Serafina, I got some questions about Basquiat, whether he's, that's art. Right. Was, was it, was it, was it you? Uh, no. Maybe it was you, Jerry, maybe it was, was it you? You mentioned it was What is art and what is the function of art? What is the blues? And have you abandoned the blues? You know, you know, because like, see there's some, I mean, I, I put it, there's too much missing in all of this. Yeah. It's like taking the whole postmodern thing, hook, line and sinker, yeah. or taking, you know, pop art, um, his name, you know, Andy, Andy Warhol. Warhol. Hook, line, and sinker, without any critical, uh, critical evaluation. What? Well, I'm taking this, and what? What are the consequences of that? You know, and then what? What is the blues? The as Du Bois called it, the the rhythmic narrative of a disappointed people. I mean, what does that mean? Why? So, what is your criteria of black art? Right. So they don't, none of these questions are addressed, answered, or whatever. The next question for me is what is poetry? What is a poet? What is the moral responsibility of the artist and the poet? I mean, during the Black Arts Movement, there were a lot of poets. A lot of them I have a lot of problems with. You know, just saying black, 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 I'm black, I'm black, I'm black, and I'm proud, I ain't black. You know? That doesn't, that's not a poem. That's just a series of statements. Good, you're black. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, anybody could, and just to make rhymes. See, that's going back to Basquiat. You know, childish infantile graffiti is the equivalent of uh, Buford Delaney. You know, you can't, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, just, just one more thing, just one more thing, just one more quick point. So I think that the album, which I, I know um, Jeremiah has listened to a lot of it. I, I haven't, I read the review, I read several reviews being reviewed everywhere. And I think for me, the most important questions are not even addressed because they accept that art has no elevated moral responsibility. And, you know, again, I, I, I keep going back to King. So there's no sky. What are you saying to children? Okay, let's start with children. I know Mark Lamont Hill at one time was promoting the idea of a hip hop pedagogy. Oh. That the only way you could teach little black kids is through hip hop. So in other words, not only is the country segregated, but the black mind is so constructed that only hip hop, you know, well, I mean, we got a Du Bois, we got a Bob, we got a, we got a lot of people and it wasn't hip hop, you know, and, but see, it's this, 
I, I, th I, I agree. It is a stereotyping, demeaning, and put down of Black folk and saying that there is no way out of this crisis, that in the face of all of this, retreat and find your own truth. Mm -hmm. Let me let Al come in and then Jerry. I guess the question is also who is interested in this version of Black people um, and their art? Um, we had talked about Vastgaard before, and that was a really, actually, I did want to bring it up because I went to this Vastgaard exhibition in New York City. Oh, you're the one that we have. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it was you and I. Okay. And it was especially jarring because I had gone to this exhibition after the group of us had gone to Fisk University Ooh. and seen the murals by Aaron Douglas, in which, you know, with the murals, you saw actually an aspiration. You know, there was an aspiration of science, of philosophy, of art, mm -hmm. and all of these beautiful things that we were also inspired by. Um, but even also being on Fisk University's campus, mm -hmm. you know, this idea of striving with students and an education mm -hmm. um, for the future. And then shortly thereafter, I went to the Basquiat exhibition, which no one should go to except for as a social experiment. Yeah. Like it was completely the meaning of Black art and Black culture, especially after that experience at Fisk. Because with Basquiat, you have, you know, an, a so-called artist that's being held as the Black artist. Mm -hmm. And his art is just scribbled. You know, there's, there, um, there's one of Miles Davis, and he mm -hmm. actually is just a scribble on a canvas. <laughs> it's crayon. Sorry, with the crayon. Yeah, it looks like yeah. it was a crayon drawing. Right, okay, and then there's also okay. like, Muhammad Ali, you know, these figures that we really look up to. And he was also reduced to scribbles and graffiti. I, I don't even know this would be considered graffiti art. Um, but that's so insulting to a tradition that actually has produced great art to say that this is the art that is of Black people. Um, and so I think that contrast of who is who is promoting this kind of art when there are people like Muhammad Ali, um, Aaron Douglas, Jacob Lawrence, et cetera, et cetera. Like even for Jacob Lawrence, um, right before the pandemic, there was a great migration series at the um, Whitney Museum in New York City. And through um, the series, it was a series of portraits, not portraits, um, like canvases in which it documented um, the history of Black people moving from the South, but also mm -hmm. the different um, struggles that they had faced, whether it's like, you know, getting onto a crowded train station mm -hmm. as they were leaving the South, or if it was at the polling booth, mm -hmm. or if it was in the classroom. Um, so the question is, why is this, like, why is someone like Basquiat so emerging in these times <laughs> as Black art? Why is Kenya so long? Oh yeah, I asked yeah. Kathy and Kathy's like, I'm interested in that question too. Well, <laughs> I remember one thing I will say, I mean, this is, a, I mean, I feel like you're sort of like laying it pretty well. It's like, you're, it's, you're like, um, again, like Doc, only in the last few days have I been like, oh, when you say like, we need to make sure that children and young people have a sky to aspire to, this is the sort of thing that you like put in like, you know, just, yeah, reduce and limit the, their capacity to imagine. But I remember when we were first looking into pop art, I was still like, I, you know, you're quite exposed to, you know, comic books or Andy Warhol. And then you had asked the question, 
is there even a single black artist as part of like pop art? And I feel like the closest we got, and I, I am starting to think that like Basquiat is yeah. the sort of same yeah. tendencies, but made for black folk. Yeah. And like in all the ways that like, you know, he's heralded in the same ways. Cause like, I forget that uh, he, his life story also uh, like a youth that rose up into such glamorous and iconic and like fam all these circles. And I think even like Brushels, I even had like a working relationship with like Andy Warhol. No, no, Andy Warhol was Manager? his promoter. Oh yeah, but yeah. yeah, yeah. It would never yeah. have been wow. without yeah. Andy Warhol. Right, right, right. Well, it just sounds like one more way that pop art is like recycled, rebranded, and then redistributed as like black art and masquerading as such, and then not only being put out there for young black artists to aspire to, mm -hmm. like aspire to the same sort of irreverence and like, you know, tossing or discarding or like, you know, reinterpreting, remixing um, mm -hmm. history or your own culture. And then he like Basquiat's very compatible with hip hop because of I feel like his lifestyle and the way he lived his life. And I feel like he is sort of like the um, visual equivalent of postmodernism and hip hop, which I think mm -hmm. is something we started to like dive into. And then uh, one more thing I was going to say is that I think one of the other things that maybe we touched on this before, there's a big shame of all of this is that I would say even when we talked about how like hip hop is so consumed, not only by young black people, but like white kids that grow up in the suburbs, young Asians that grow up in the suburbs. In some ways, when we talk about the segregation of like people, but there's also a way that the ruling elite, even like, I feel like I was, I had to learn about Kendrick Lamar or something. I had to like kind of get into like what it meant to like, you know, be a college educated young person and feel woke. And in some ways they're like trying to group together young college educated folks, like white, black, Asian, Latino and everything. And like the same thing maybe even goes for like Basquiat or types of art that you're supposed to engage in or feel like um, after a college education supposed to predispose you to and I think it is a shame because you forget you just don't know or you just don't realize how much higher the sky can even go because <laughs> of like the black kind of you're supposed to even you're, you're meant to yeah you're meant to know but I guess or like you're not meant to know but you once you know you you can go much further and you realize like you, what you know what people yeah what the university tells you about yeah black folk is just not true it's just not even comes close I just had like one thing you said the influence it has on America the thing with art in America also it has tragic consequences for the rest of the world yeah. Yeah. that's so true yeah. <laughs> it's not even with song Emily this morning and this is kind of it was one sample point but in Taiwan, Basquiat is also being promoted. Yes, in Japan. Japan has like collected so much Basquiat's work too. Go ahead, Jerry. Well, this is not uh, specifically related to Basquiat, but on the subject of art, um, I also wanted to bring up the album art for the Kendrick Lamar album. That's true. Because oh, yeah. it's, well, I'll, I'll show you. Yeah. Yeah. I'll it's a, Family. Oh. Where it's like him wearing a like a crown of thorns, and then he has a gun like tucked into his pants, and then he's holding I think his baby, yeah. and then I don't know if that's his like actual partner, but then there's like a woman also nursing a baby, 
And actually, it made me think like a few things, but one of which was that, you know, if the message of the album is that, you know, basically I'm just going to retreat into myself and deal with my inner inner problems and my trauma and all that stuff. And, you know, I just want to be good enough for me. What's, like, what's interesting is that at the same time, first of all, Kendrick is portraying himself through the artwork as being like, not just a father, but a carrier of like the life of future generations. I think symbolically it represents like, basically this is what is like my legacy. This is what I'm passing down to future generations. And that is hugely important. But then even more than that, he depicts himself as Jesus basically. And you can also interpret that several ways. One of which is that maybe he feels like, you know, he's reached the level of Jesus or that he's been, he's being crucified like Jesus and that he's being put under all these pressures and all that stuff. And that also, you know, you can interpret it as him saying like, you know, I'm seen as very holy, but also I have to have a gun because I'm a black man and I'm violent or something. And, and the crown of thorns. And the crown of thorns, like saying that he's, yeah, basically like Jesus. And, but that's like, I think the ironic thing about this, which is I think the whole irony is the pop art influence which is that he is through the the symbolism of the album and how he's portraying himself the branding that he's going for with this album like all these photo shoots where he's wearing a crown of thorns he's very clearly sending a message of like one not just equating himself to jesus but like this is like he takes it seriously he thinks it's an important message for america as much as he's saying like oh this is just about me no he's saying that this is an important message for all of America and for the world. And so that's where it's, yeah, like then like all of these contradictions come up, but it's almost like he he loves the, like he loves the irony of it. Yeah, the hypocrisy of it. And that's what he's, re he's reveling in, in the- but he's considering irony is really hypocrisy. Yeah. Right, yeah. Go for it, Derek. So I was thinking about the American, studying my art forms and studying my lifetime. The person would say, are you a primitive? Because American primitive, but because you doing you're doing art, I'm not gonna use the word spontaneous, but uh -huh. your, your intuition and in, in my drawings, yeah. like I've never been to art school, right. but I've right. been with art students who came to see my work, but I've never been trained by anybody from the art school, but I still approach um solidity and lines, a lot of stuff that I've uncovered, but but the the title of the of the them giving the person the primitive. Yeah. You had to go to Oceana to find where these living forms that the Western civilization suppress all these things in our communities. How we respond to art or our environment and hardcore lifestyle, what that does to the human being that's inspired inside of their nature. But in, in American uh, teachers would say, oh, you just People are just primitive, but on the on the on the other level, it's a new form of like where people took the word for the Cubist artists mm -hmm. and took that and not really say, well, it's not just African art, like just using that as a label. It's something that American artists have done with the horn that no one could do with a horn. And and people was inspired. Like myself, you could be inspired by horn players, but I'm a painter with a brush and I do sculpture too. But but for somebody to assign to you the name primitive, you gotta really uncover what that means, not just on the 
positive to the negative level, but what that means when you, you know, you insinuating that I'm primitive, like I, we don't have no manners, we don't have. I think what they're yeah, yeah. you're unschooled. Un, yeah. Unschooled, but I had to like say, well, I'm self-learned, but I still yeah. need people that I learned from. Yeah, so so this is a important part of our Johnson here today to, you know, to deal but, with this but art. Is, isn't Basquiat trying to imitate an unschooled artist, is that? Yeah, I, I feel like what Eric, you're trying to say is like, like you, there's times when you will appear to maybe the white gaze or an untrained eye to be very like, you know, childlike or native, but that's the sort of label that's often put on so many black artists or even artists in the world. Yeah, in general, but then it also like, to, you're also saying that like there's a tradition or like quite a rigorous methodology of approaching the world's different traditions of folk art or like the art of people yes. and like trying to channel that with or without the training whatever you've got mm -hmm. and like it's actually quite a uh, you know it's it's quite a discipline or it's quite a, a to, to make art that yeah. music but then Basquiat is not even maybe he is feeling that but it's not the yeah. same yeah I don't yeah know Look up why I use the word they use crayon because yeah, I, yeah. I have a, um I have my relationship when I draw with crayon, but I have kept it from from kindergarten to first grade where where if I'm working here for you to see what I've done with crayon, that don't mean not to scribble to like like I'm a scribe, but I, I won't scribble it. I will show you what line has formed and what color, and then crayons could give texture and it could give design just because I'm using it like I imprinted myself. With the crayon, but that's something that's technical. <laughs> if if a person didn't really apprehend that, children are learning technical things in designing with crayon. But you told to throw the crayons away when you get ten or twelve. So <laughs> where mine have maintained me throughout my entire life, yeah, so that yeah. I might use crayon because it's a technical thing that you're using crayon for. It's like wax, but it's unwaxed. You know what I mean, like that. But it's. it's but this is the body, this is the embodiment of something that people are trying to suppress us and kill us. So we can't say what we want to do with our daily life every day to approach our lives, not just as artists, but as an everyday person. Yeah, but can I, can I just say, if you don't mind, this is very interesting. And the, the organic, which you're describing, yeah. as opposed to the fake, you see? Yes. <laughs> I, you know, the fake is that you're trying to act like you're the organic artist, you know, when in fact you are a fake of the organic. Uh, I'm not saying it well. I'm trying to define something using the word itself. But this gets to a very important thing because so much of Black art could be called, quote, primitive. I know at one point, if you went back to the 30s and 40s, they would consider jazz to be primitive. That is untrained, unschooled musicians aspiring or acting like, they were always would say, they're acting like they are sophisticated musicians. Well, now we know they weren't just acting like they are sophisticated. But the other thing is, that the so-called primitive or organic artist mm -hmm. is really in conversation, a critical engagement with the art world, yes. with the music world. Mm -hmm. You listen to uh, Nina Simone, 
who was trained at uh, was it more not more college but the uh, the uh, Curtis Curtis yeah Curtis no Curtis she was, it was Curtis Curtis musical I thought I thought she was denied access to Curtis. Actually, I think you're right. Maybe she, she was. She, she was denied acceptance because of her race. Okay. Yeah, but she she was she but she was she classically yeah not, not a curve yeah. but she was classically trained, and what she did is to subject to the organic critique of the blues, the quote high art of the classical world. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a dialectical. And if you listen to Ellington, mm -hmm. certainly if you listen to Train, if you listen to Billie Holiday, mm -hmm. I didn't even mention Sarah Vaughan, mm -hmm. it, is, it is the Black person who is not trained mm -hmm. by the high art, by the official, mm -hmm. the official um, mm -hmm. art or music world, but hear them, know what they're doing, study what they're doing, and then enter into a dialectic. And in fact, have pulled off probably one of the great synthesis in uh, philosophical and, um, and musical uh, history. But yeah, I just wanted to say that. Uh, uh, go, 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 Sarah. No, go ahead, you go. No, I mean, that's what you're pointing out to is not even just like, I guess it's like in the fine art zone with painters and photographers yes, yes, or whatever yes, yes. you wanna call it, like that. But even so, the, or the fake organic artists, that's definitely a trend that started, a, it's like I, something that I noticed that I was trying to avoid at some point because I was just <laughs> like, I was like, well, why is it that when we draw black people that makes us like hit all of a sudden, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. like, that doesn't get us to the truth about anything. It just shows what people want to see. Um, and there's a lot of different painters who have variations of this today, <laughs> but um, it doesn't get to a certain answer no, that, that art but see, but this, but, but this, this, this is what um, uh, Kathy studies. I'm sorry, Kathy. <laughs> no, she she studies pop art. Right. She knows pop art. She does. And what did Andy Warhol say? That art, that commercial art right. is art. Yeah, okay. Right. Now let's get back to quote primitive art. Right. But primitive art is unsophisticated, untrained art, but commercial art right. designed to sell things mm -hmm. is sophisticated right. art. Right. Now, but then this gets us to another question that I think somebody raised deindustrialization yeah. and you know here's what a u.s economy by the way is, uh Zeu, is different than the chinese economy but hold let me make this point deindustrialization 70 percent of the u.s economy is based upon marketing and buying and selling the US economy is an economy that produces not just an economic ruling class, but a very parasitic yeah. ruling class. Yeah. And what happens to art when people don't have jobs? 
Right, right. When people, what happens to music? When they're not coming from Motown, Motown means motored city, where they produce cars and everybody's working in a factory and singing when they get off of work in the basement or on the weekend and perfecting their art. What happens when you don't have that any longer? What does art and music look like? And I think, you know, or what does poetry look like? When, when the people producing it are no longer anchored to production. And so the artist becomes a hustler, a salesman or a saleswoman. I'm trying to find a way, and I, I have a very good friend that does this. His, his overriding concern is how to market his art, not how to make art. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, pour the bar. Yeah, just... Oh, I'm sorry. Huh? No, stick to that. Oh, you have to? You're going to. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, pour, pour and then uh, Johan. I was just, uh, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the article itself, which yes. reviews the uh, thing. I found it very confusing, I, I must mm -hmm. say, because I'm yeah. not used to reading yeah. uh, something that's supposed to give people an idea or a, or a summary or the essence of something that you're writing about in such confusing term where you just have <laughs> you're assaulted by words. Well, you're you know? not very familiar with the American intellectual. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm learning now. Or the New York Times. Yeah, and you know, it's just like, have you, you know- taken a course in, uh, in in the social sciences or oh. yeah see you did science <laughs> this is all this is what you well jerry can tell you this because he majored in english but uh that's that's why he can understand it so well i'm sorry <laughs> no i mean i found this uh conversation we had around it very clarifying because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm i'm going to have to learn how to read these articles better because i was i was confused because there were so many parts where you had clearly negative things yeah, being said yeah, yeah. so yeah. i've never seen negative th negative things being used to elevate yeah, something yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah this yeah, is yeah, just yeah, such yeah, a it's yeah. a concept i don't i'm mm -hmm. not down with <laughs> <laughs> basically saying that you know truth can be fragmented into parts some of which are ugly some of which are beautiful but all, all in all you know when you put the pieces together it's some imperfect thing but that's not the version of truth that i'm ready to believe in and also i like what uh, what emily said that was very clarifying the, it seems like the review aside what this uh, album goes for is the idea the idea of it is to diminish human potential like you know you what, what you aim towards Right, what we've been talking about. But yeah, this review is like, it's just like, it's a word jumble, which is not meant to clarify <laughs> anything. Um, might as well not have been written. But I see now that it will go ahead and make this more interesting to people and give it a bigger viewership. But then I also was uh, interested by the choice of word, which Emily pointed out that, you know, he's looking in the mirror to retreat. And it reminded me of this conversation we had at the Azadi Reading Collective about, you know, 
the the mirror the that you know black america holds up to the Indi- indian struggle and vice versa and i was just thinking that you know we are talking about the same words but coming from such different uh, perspectives i mean this mirror that they're talking about he's looking at is basically you know narcissism that's right, just like right, just looking at yourself uh-huh. but you don't see in the mirror everything that came before you that produced you and don't see what you know the role you are supposed to play in the future because of that history and that past um the other thing i I'm, i'm always i'm always curious about this is how do they pick these people like how do you pick people like kendrick lamar and how do you pick people like uh, yeah how do you pick, i don't even well, know how to pronounce that let's um, let's get back to this this is very very important because they are chosen they are and, chosen and who, yeah what are the criteria of making the choice mm-hmm. and who makes that choice let's come back to that mm-hmm. because it is not coming from the people that they claim to represent no. okay but let, let me let me call on joe yeah well i had a question because it was interesting what you were saying uh, tying rap and hip hop to deindustrialization oh yeah because like one of the main defenses of hip hop from like the progressives or left thinkers is that they argue like oh, okay this is the music of the industrialization so there would be like the or you know like especially the more like conscious rappers like public enemy and stuff mm-hmm. they would be like or even i guess like tupac or biggie mm-hmm. they would be like these guys represent that generation growing up uh you know in the aftermath of the defeat of the struggles the aftermath of you know the pro- during the industrialization and their rapping is representing that reality of not having opportunity to mm-hmm. violence mm-hmm. drugs mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. i think someone was telling me that i think there's like a do- i haven't watched it but someone was telling me there's like a documentary something called vanguard of the rubble so some of the early rappers were like oh like we're the vanguard of the rubble like yo like i don't know the panthers and all that is done mm-hmm. and we're coming out of that so anyway i was just be wondering how you would see that and respond to that in relation to what you're because you're also saying it's Coming out, obviously, it's coming out of that chronological period, yeah. those social conditions. Yes, but you're not, but you don't see it necessarily as, as a representative or like a response, a conscious response to them. You know what I mean? No, I don't think. I, I think. I think the whole postmodernist movement is an acceptance of the inevitability of deindustrialization and the impoverishment of the working class, and that. Uh, it gets translated in hip hop and other forms of youth culture mm-hmm. including sports mm-hmm. uh as uh making it mm-hmm. getting to the top like you look at some of the commercials that lebron james is in these days uh if he doesn't see it as demeaning it's because he doesn't understand the nature of the game that he's in but um it is it is a first of all the consignment of black people and black men in particular who make it pretty much to sports and quote music uh which means that um they are commodities yeah right yeah 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 but the privileging of hustling, 
of the hustler, of the, um, you know, the hustler. The hustlers, you know, hustler is a person, well, back in the days that didn't want to work, uh, okay. but want to hustle the working class. Oh, that puts it into context, doesn't it? Yeah. That you know, term is from the earlier period. Yeah, yeah, are, yeah, an yeah, yeah, a hustler. You know, a hustler, uh, for instance, hustlers would stay home all day and wait for the working people to come home and try to beat them out of their money. Right. I'm not making that up. Right, 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 right. You know, or no a, a pimp. <laughs> a pimp is a hustler of women. You know, and so um, pimping and hustling, if you remember, you, you, you guys go back in hip hop, the pimp and the hustler were iconic and romanticized figures. Yeah, within uh, hip hop, uh, the black exploitation movies, which were protested against in the 70s when they came out, and there are black exploitation film stars and movie producers who never forgave the movement for protesting against them. You know, under normal conditions of struggle, hip hop would have been protested against. There's no reason somebody with that, excuse my life, bitches and hoes thing. That was still, still, how many children heard that? And it was always excused, well, he's not talking about me. Well, how do you know who he's talking about? Yeah. One thing you know, he's not talking about no white woman because that record wouldn't have been made. If, I mean, let's keep it real. So you're talking about black women. How did that become so uh, ubiquitous? How did that happen? And therefore, I am. I, I make the argument, and I can't get away from this. Person come to me for well, hip hop, this and well, you don't know the the real hip hop, and and did you hear the roots or did you hear Kendrick Lamar? I'm saying, well, what I want to hear from them, I've never heard a full throated attack upon that attack upon black people. That's what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear a full throated attack upon the romanticization of murder and, and thuggery. Where the fuck did that come from? Never a word. Like, oh, they, they, were, they were talking about their reality. No, they weren't. Most of them were performers acting out. So um, it gets to the point of who chose this and who promoted this. It is obviously the ruling class who knew that a black proletariat without jobs is a black proletariat who would resist. Right. So what you give them ideologically, you feed them ideologically over two and a half generations. This is what makes this so difficult. It's not just last, no, two and a half generations. And then you make it into a religion. Criticize hip hop. Oh, you're criticizing my being. You're criticizing my gods. That's why Kendra trying to be every man after he was made to be a, pro a prophet. You know, you, you see how that, it's all 
of it is all intentional. That's why the ideological struggle must draw red lines. What side are you on? And so you criticize hip hop, you lost a young friend. You know, you, criti you, don't, you don't feel that Kendrick Lamar is a genius. Well, you know, uh, don't come to our Malcolm X event, <laughs> which was a hip hop event. But I was happy to see that didn't too many people turned up anyway. You know, <laughs> I mean, so you get this. See, and then it's a. Oh, I'm telling. You, it is the. I'm always asking myself. Me and Catherine are always asking this. We're black young people. I ask Seraphina. Ask Derek. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. One thing we do know is that they've been ideologically neutralized. Ideologically neutralized. Look, back in my days, if there were a group of people getting together to discuss Du Bois and Mars, ain't no way in the world you can keep me out of it. And all my friends, you know, what about all these black students at Temple? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you just trying to, well, Doc, what you doing over there? You don't want to know what Doc is doing because you're ideologically neutralized and you are, you have accepted not just, a, and I put quotes around this, not just an art form, but a belief system, a dogma. And you're calling art which at best is mediocrity. Just like Andy Warhol, come on dog, you ain't did nothing great. You ain't, you ain't done, you don't function like any of the great artists. You know what I'm saying? So you take the great musical heritage and all you can do is sample it for your own uh, purposes which is all about you, you know, it's, it is, it is a total scam, a total hustle, but only in an economy where there's been complete deindustrialization, black communities, as you see, have been ruined and men and women broken on the wheel of life and children not given the opportunity to be educated. Yeah. Families broken. And, and see, this is why Joe Biden, you know, when it comes to the great moral questions of our time, I ain't running to you, anybody but you, because you were in the forefront along with Hillary and Bill Clinton and bums with the criminal justice system. Do you know what it means? Well, first you have deindustrialization and one fourth, at least, of all young black men are in jail. One fourth. No two family income homes, no maritable men for women. And they weren't just given short, they were given long prison terms. Joe Biden, that's you, dog. You. you see, this is what this is the magnitude of what we're dealing with. That is why 
ideas without a moral foundation are not enough. The greatest ideas, of course, we're studying Hegel, we're studying Marx, we do the whole nine, but without some moral foundation driving, that shit don't mean nothing. We can go, we can go over to the University of Pennsylvania and sit in a class of a quote Marxist professor and hear that. And he can probably quote Marx better than anybody in this room will ever be able to do. You know, that's another thing I just want to say. <laughs> book worship is a form, you know, you got Lenin talked about book worship. Uh, people who worship the text so much that they literally memorize it. But then, but what about people who don't read books, but they can have worship, another kind of worship. Of their quote heroes that are explaining their trauma. Let me just, I'm, I'm gonna end up. Black people don't talk like that. We don't talk. I mean, it's like, you know, let's, you know, you, you hit me, you push me, I'm gonna push back. You know, you, um, we're not that kind of, you know, you know, like this Kendrick, come on, man, who are you trying to impress? That's not the way we act. That's not in the DNA of the Black struggle. It's always been Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. We're going to stand, we're going to speak out. That's our job. We have to speak out for the people. And so this, it's, it's a very, I, I would say it is very difficult because it's not like Motown in a little house producing great music, grounded in the black community of Motor City of Detroit. It's not coming from the bottom. Now it's chosen for us. And to make sure you give the proper authority to those that we have chosen, we're gonna give them a Grammy Award, a MacArthur Genius Award. We're going to make them, and they would never do that unless they were in crisis. They wouldn't do it unless this was a profound crisis. Just you think that popped into my mind was when I was in uh, Philadelphia Screening Music. Yes. Um, there's that's like a nonprofit, like in high school and stuff. I got into it somehow. I think I just knew people, and I started going. Yeah. And then, um, I don't know, have you heard of this before? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So there's an initiative that they wanted to do, which was make an album, which actually I think it was because somebody in the organization was like a female rapper, mm -hmm. whatever, like that. And I know that the I know the model that they want to do. Okay, so they're in the neighborhood of West Philadelphia, basically 50, it's uh, mm -hmm. uh, on 52nd Street mm -hmm. and something, I forget. It's um closer I forget anyway so and you know you want to make art and stuff within the community and all that kind of thing and then I guess they they did end up making it out so I was just thinking about that as apropos to the conversation right. about how is art actually um developed within people's lives and within young people's lives because the question that I'm having is like, okay, well, I know that 
Well, like, how can art actually um, organically arise today? Because one, people need ideas. Um, but um, how, but you know, when things like That's that. a great question. I, I what, what is the process yeah. by which art is created, by which artists emerge? Mm -hmm. To follow that line, even though I'm going to say what else I was going to think about, um, you know, it was important that people had jobs yes. and that gave stabilization in the lives, you know, uh, in the daily life. But since that's not the situation now, I can still imagine that if people had ideas, um, they could still make art. Oh, yes. So, but, but, see, but see, there has to be a sky. Yeah. No, so it's not. There has like, to be something to strive towards. Exactly, exactly. And art must be clearly understood. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and not. Oh, God, I'm sorry. That you know, for the 10th anniversary, I guess we're kind of working out is this question that we're talking about yeah. now yeah. about culture and whatnot. And you know, yeah. we're kind of like on uh, some of us are like on an assignment to kind of make like a logo a little bit. We're thinking about it, just trying to think about school, it. Yeah. And, and so, some of us have read the criteria of Negro art recently, and you know. So in the essay, Du Bois writes that, well, the you know churches and so on, that kind of thing, are beautiful in the fact that they are made beautifully. But he he stands by the fact that he thinks beauty is inseparable from the truth, <laughs> and that beauty stems from the truth. So it's like a not even in the sense of surface level aesthetics, but the fact that something that is true is beautiful. And that's a different reality of thinking. Um, so we were thinking about that um, as we think about how fruitful things are and whatnot. But another thing that came up in my head as to the conversation of hip hop and such goes, I've had a lot of conversations with men about um, hip hop and you know why they are inspired by hip hop, why they think it's important. Mm -hmm. But I haven't had a lot of conversations with women okay. about hip hop, and that's only because I don't have a lot of women friends. Yes. And that's me. That's a me thing. But but what is interesting though is that now you have like all these women who are artists who are also hustlers and selling off their everything. Nicki Minaj. There's like so many people um, who emerged out of that kind of phase of women rapping and things like that. But I know that when um, when men, black men, when I was first introducing Kendrick Lamar, I was in the earlier stages of Kendrick Lamar, and, you know, Pimple Butterfly and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I guess he was closer to like, I'm not going to go for a while. It's interesting to pimp. Yes. Pimp. Yes. A butterfly. Yeah. The word pimp. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 It's always there. <laughs> yeah. It's always. That's supposed to be like ironic. Yeah, of course, of course. They're pimping out. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, I, I suppose to be. Right. <laughs> In the album cover, and it doesn't. It doesn't. And so that's what I'm saying. We don't compromise on those things. But, but what was it's like the thing that always comes up is that 
people want to say that I relate to the daily, you know, the things that the rapper is supposed to be saying right. about life and so on. Absolutely. So similar to the conversation about the inorganic artists, aka Basquiat, or those who want to um, be artists to show Black life in their realest sense of the word, you know, and not... It, what happens is that you don't elevate at all um, or even understand the humanity in Black people. You just want to kind of just lock it to the box of, right. since I have the skin mm -hmm. that is Black and thus I <laughs> am, you know, dehumanized mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. and I, you know, it's just like different boxes that artists go into and I just don't understand why they don't see that. But yeah, I just wanted to mention those two things. Um, but so it's so very interesting. Sorry, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're talking about like the moral foundations mm -hmm. for art. I think one thing we would talk about is the, is the necessity for the child, the immortal child, for making something that they can see, like we're talking about, like see the stars, see the sky. Um, and artists now are basically with the idea of, well, you know, I'm just representing me and no one needs to take what I'm saying. You know, I'm, I'm not, not uh, needing to be held responsible for this. And it actually makes me think this, this essay um, we're reading in our, our readings with the uh, Nothing Personal, uh, James Baldwin. He says, um, and this is a different way to take youth. He says the eternal youth is the, is a synonym for corruption. And, and what I, what I get from that isn't that, you know, different ideas, but, um, you know, to uh, to pretend that you can be a child forever right. and, to, and to just right. but you don't take responsibility, right. right? And if you feel that way, then of course you're not going to be responsible to another child because you're just a child yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, but also this question of whose art, you know, we, we keep saying what is art, and I feel like that's that plays into it a little bit too much to me because mm -hmm. really the question mm -hmm. comes down to whose art, who wants to represent the millionaire, the millionaire as an everyday man. Who really wants us to believe that's what every day is like to, to have that mindset, that mentality of people as statistics? You know, um, I don't know. That, that just there's there's a there's a lack of you know yeah. a, a community built around children, a, a society, a civilization. Yeah. This is the thing we're talking about. It's just how do I get to where I need to get to get you know kill these things? But the um, but the the object of admiration. Is the millionaire? Yeah. It is not, and and I, th I I get this from you, Jeremiah, when you talk about first of all, the portrayal of black life is usually a generally stere very stereotypical. Mm -hmm. Even the artist or the rapper himself or herself portrays herself stereotypically and they will say well that's not me that's just me acting the persona i take on now i don't know i think maybe other there were some that were more authentic about who they were but uh i think um and i don't know everybody see this is it's so it's so you know varied but um but now Kendrick has risen to the top. And so then you, you, you ask the question, what about Tupac? What about Biggie Smalls? Mm -hmm. What about um, Public Enemy, let us say? Um, and was 
old school original hip hop, the real hip hop. And what we have now is a poor imitation. Well, we don't fully know. Mm -hmm. I don't fully, I mean, if you know, I would be very happy. You know, I mean, anybody, because so it is- hip hop have gone in a different direction? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody will say, you know, if you say, I don't dig hip hop. Well, you don't know the original, the old school hip hop. Mm -hmm. You ever hear that hurricane? Yeah. I get that all. Now I have to, in all transparency, I have to say, I made a hip hop uh, Record. Right. Uh, <laughs> single, one single. Got an hour. Right. The people that made it, they won't, they won't, you know, they hold it. But it's called Good Morning Revolution. Oh, wait, yeah. Yeah. It's very different. It's very different. But I'm just, um, but uh, maybe, you know, maybe we could get a report from the Azadi reading group. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Hey, listen, uh, Lou and Zayo, if you guys want to, you know, come on in, please do. It'd be so good to hear from you. I know, I was wondering while we're talking, since we have people who are Chinese citizens, how does this, how does all of this, what goes on in, in this society, resonate with you all? I mean, if you want to reveal it, you know. <laughs> go ahead, Zayu. No, that's a very good question. <laughs> I always joked about it with Lou because I was like, I feel more American than anything. That's very interesting, man. So what after three years? Almost five years. That's very interesting. Wow. Well, not so just because I'm definitely not a representative sample, right? Okay. That's more on the yeah. Uh so I yeah, I I'm interested in American history, Marxism, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why yeah, of course there is uh great potential in America if we were to achieve socialism, right? Yeah. Um, but I'm not, not very familiar with the pop culture we were talking about, so I can't quite comment on that. But basically, yeah, the, the recent events, the Buffalo shooting, which is quite tragic, uh, I did not really follow. I think what what would be discussed makes a lot of sense. Do you want to say anything? Uh, yeah, I think I don't know much about the artists that you guys mentioned, but I think I see some similarities in terms of like how the representation, how they felt, um, like to create or reinforce a certain stereotype, um, or like how people should act or present certain aspects of a group to the larger audience and saying that, yeah, that's how we should accept the life of this uh, group of people. I certainly see that even though Chinese is like, uh, not like so racially diverse or like ethnically, as a group, so certain times you would see like, yeah, how um, like a Han Chinese, Chinese director tries to 
uh, portray a certain Tibetan group, like how they act or so, and then create certain um, stereotypes around that, even though a Tibetan uh, director portrays mm -hmm. people in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those distinguish, like distinguish, how we distinguish people are more of like man-made thing and created and reinforced <coughs> like music and movies and so rather than like naturally how people are like acting or you know I, I'm always I mean for myself that's the reason I asked because I'm always interested in that mirror mm. you know how it comes across and I, I can say when you say you you can, I, I understood very, in a very empathetic way what you were saying. I'm more American than I am Chinese these days, you know? And, and I, 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 I took that to be that to understand this society and this culture, you had, it couldn't be from a distance. It had to be more close up. Yeah, I understand. And, that, and that's very, very important. But I would argue this point that, and this I talked to Purba and, and Chibata, we, we talk about India and Afro-America in ways that I am not able to explain. America is more Afro-American than it is white. And, and I would say, I, I would agree with you in becoming American but I would, I would say, become American in the right way. You, you, you understand? I mean, I just, because I think what you're saying, to know it is you have to be it in a lot of ways. And I, I'm interested, you know, in like Tibetans and Han Chinese, et cetera. And I'm certain that there are all kinds of stereotypes of minority groups in China. Lou with one great distinction. They were never made chattel slaves. Yeah. See, mm -hmm. that that is such a game changer, you know. And so all of this uh, flowering of the human soul, the human spirit, comes out of this great struggle against slavery and for democracy. And that's where Du Bois and all these black thinkers far surpass uh, any of the other American thinkers. And I would say um, are elevated to the level of world historic thinking. Mm -hmm. So I would, you did where I'm coming from. And that's why this ideological struggle with art mm -hmm. and pop art and commodification of art and all of that is so important because we want to hold on to what is great that comes out of resistance. It's, and it's a hell of a thing these days. <laughs> yeah. I'll just add that Thank last you. week, we and Salafus uh, discussed Chris Kuchon's article on the dictatorship of the area, mm -hmm. along with uh, the first chapter of Black Reconstruction. These are Christians? Sorry? No, the founder of Platypus. And, and, and tomorrow we are doing the second chapter. The white, the white worker? Yeah. And if I could say one, because I, I was, there was an article, Danny posted it, somebody, he could, could be a person in Platypus who wrote an article of something to the effect of, does the working class still exist? 
Yeah, but the and I was I, I read part of it and I was saying, well, you can never answer that question if you don't see the black worker. Right. And you know, and then I was just thinking, think the black working class looks more like the 19th and 20th century proletariat, you know, in the conditions of his life, the ghettoization, the homelessness, the poverty wages, looks more like the 19th century proletariat that Engels or Marx would talk about mm -hmm. than any other part of the working class in the society. Mm -hmm. And in many ways is more like, you know, the work, that's why we, just almost naturally gravitate towards India. You know, black folk in our movements, we gravitate towards China. We're rooting for China over the United States all the time. <laughs> really, we, when, they, when they go to the nation of Islam, all these Asian, these Koreans and Chinese go to the nation of Islam and they open their arms warmly. Welcome our Asiatic black brothers and sisters. <laughs> they, because we've always had that tendency to look to the, the groups that the U.S. saw as margin, would try to marginalize and put down and say, there are people too. They're like us. So I just want to say, uh, could, could you just want to say something about Azadi? Yeah, so uh, as, as most of you know, the Azadi Reading Collective, um, it, it met for its first session this Thursday. And, and it's going to continue for the next several weeks and months as a part of the year of the Indian freedom struggle to commemorate 75 years of Indian independence. And uh, I think we had a good conversation to begin uh, um, um, to begin the first session and we hope it, it, it continues over the year to the next few months. So primarily we had a discussion about the significance of the Indian freedom struggle, its historical significance, and you know the method, the chief method that it furnished, and you know it 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 really was a new method in the history of revolutionary movements in the world, and its significance because it, it really connected. It it was the first uh, anti-colonial movement that inspired several anti-colonial movements in Asia and Africa, and also the most important connection to the Black Freedom Struggle and the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, so we also had a conversation about, you know, how to understand the nonviolent movement today, because there is a tendency, as I think we were also talking about before, at some point today, about how nonviolent movement it has, it's, it's been, uh, it's, it's, it's almost co-opted to mean something that it was not. It was, it's co-opted on the one hand to mean that it's, it's a spiritual endeavor, which has nothing to do with, you know, hard realities of the time. And also this other understanding of nonviolence simply as an absence of violence. So we had a conversation that attempted to clarify what nonviolent resistance of the early 20th century in India really meant. And it was not simply an absence of violence, which was which has been portrayed um, by you know, several other times of um, I mean several other times in history which usually came after brutal repression um, you know, by the British Empire and so on. And uh, also, I think in the course of the year and even in the last conversation, 
he had to come across this question about you know the attack on uh, on Gandhi and on the Indian freedom struggle, which is ram which has been rampant from all sections of you know academia mm -hmm. and and the ruling class um, all over the world in the US and in 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 the in some places in Africa and of course also in India. And uh, I think we came to the conclusion in the conversation that you know the answer to these critics can really be found in the fact that the civil rights movement was to a big extent inspired by the method. Um, yeah, the method that Gandhi came up with. And yeah, we also had a discussion about you know how we see revolutionary movements because there is a constant feeling in India among mostly people aspiring to. Um, to you know be part of the ruling class in some sense mm -hmm. that you know the Indian state is an example of a failure or it's on its way to a failure. And I think you know, in order to in order to understand the implications and the assumptions behind the question, we have to come to understand you know how one sees failure of 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 um, revolutionary movements in the first place, and also whose lens are we seeing it through? So this, I mean, I'm thinking of what Purva was saying before about going back to Baldwin, because I think Baldwin had a deep understanding of the white man, and the reason that uh, all of this is necessary at this point today is because an understanding of the West is really missing. Mm -hmm. At a time when the West is really it's penetrated. Um, really everywhere in the world. So these questions about understanding the West is important in order in order to understand the significance of anti-colonial movements of the past mm -hmm. to to understand the relevance for today's times. Mm -hmm. And also this question of um, this question of seeing revolutionary movements as failed or thinking about them in terms of their completeness because we have to, ask ourselves mm -hmm. our role in it mm -hmm. when we think about it as an incomplete movement as opposed to thinking of it as a failure which absolves us of, of our responsibility and yeah so we hope that this conversation will go on over the next few weeks others can also add to it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right what uh, what i i was most heartened by was that there were a few people I didn't know. I mean, there were new faces, and from and and from the young people who came, um, it seemed we're getting the sense that you know this is a, a timely conversation to start. Uh, people are really looking for something to anchor them that that will help to understand this sort of illogical, violent society we are being forced to live in. And also, people are frankly tired of being ashamed of their you know history and heritage. And instinctively, they feel like what they're being asked to believe is just not the truth. Um, um, yeah, so that that was something that you know we had a, a lot of new people join us, yes. and also this everybody also shared their sort of personal interaction as South Asians in America, what their interactions with. South Asia has been like the lens through which, like Shambhato was saying, it's always through the lens of the ruling class here. But when you remove these assumptions where you start from and you start fresh and uh, try and look at the world from the perspective that, you know, 
we are talking about, which King was talking about, then it's it's a whole different, and it, it, you sort of find it easier to come to the truth. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's just what I would like to add to what Rambo was saying. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a great, great meeting, a lot of rich discussion, a lot, of, a lot of things were described. We also had a good discussion about uh, comparing Chinese revolution and Chinese history with the uh, Indian anti-colonial struggle. Um, of course, we talked a lot about, you know, just history generally, the history of the region, uh, how the supplies of the civil rights movement and our time. And uh, yeah, it was great. And we had people also on Zoom from all different parts of the US. And uh, it, it was a magnificent organizing effort. It really was. And there were about 50, 20 people, close to 20, I yeah, think. Yeah, you the Zoom. Yeah, with the Zoom people and the people in the room. And um, I think the prime audience of young Indians, young South Asians, in fact, was achieved. So I thought it was a great organization. Well, not just South Asians, it's open to everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not just the South yeah. Asians. We had all kinds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but this, this discussion is so vital among South Asians because, you know, you know, I'm, I'm learning so much just being in this, uh, in Azadi and around you all. What does it mean to rob a generation of its identity yeah. under the guise of making it in a collapsing capitalist economy? I mean, the cost to the Indian is too great. Too much will be lost. And so I, I mean, you know, Purva and I were talking, as Mike has already said this, and we just got to go in hard. No compromise on Gandhi. No, well, he may have, and oh, well, that might be. No, none of it's true. And we, we have to, by the way, I guess one of the things we're going to have to do is um, study more closely and more carefully his biography and not the Western biographers, be they white or, or Indian, but written in Hindi that are published in India because this evisceration and, and so on of Gandhi for the sake of saying that the Indian anti-colonial struggle, as, as you said, was a failure because Gandhi was a morally hypocritical human being. They, they try to do the same with King. So let's, you know, I, I, I just, it's so great to be, have been a part of that. And, and the first meeting was the reading of the, of the call, the vision statement which is almost a perfect document, I feel. I also just say about the urbanization payment. Right, so we, there's also a chapter of the Reading Collective in Urbana Shakti oh, yes. that yes, yes. Uh, our friend Shantanu and Neha, are st they started last Sunday. Um, and they had, uh, well, Arvana Champagne is a lot, like it's, it's not as uh, easy as in Philadelphia mm -hmm. to have these conversations. Yes. It's more of a bubble 
it's, it's an extreme bubble, I would say, because it's a small college town. But uh, they did have somebody uh, show up uh, virtually. And, um, you know, they had a discussion about the mission statement. And uh, I would think it, it went well, even though there were ideological differences that came up regarding the very same things you're saying, Doc, right now about Gandhi and his, uh, and, you know, just these really narrow character um, assessments that somehow become the ideological block that you can't cross. And look mm -hmm. at the broader uh, thing. Most of mo even even the character uh, sort of attacks are just un untrue, but um, manufactured. Yeah, but so those are like distortion the, of of the nobility of his life, the heroism of his life. Right, and, and the message that we have to the, carry yes, with us. Yes. Um, yes. More than the for I mean, of course, the person, but the message that we have to be, you know. You know, Purba Chantu. Uh, excuse me, but um, if you go back and look at the hundredth anniversary of Gandhi's uh, birth, I guess that was in 1970 something. The whole world celebrated him. The UN, every you know, this beautiful thing. The hundred and fiftieth, nobody hardly. He had he had come under such attack and so on so it's and the other thing i mean chambarto was talking about this a little bit but i just wanted to go back to it is that the reason this thing that you know 100th anniversary of this grand celebration at 150th you're close to nothing i mean this precisely shows how afraid the ruling class is of this philosophy and this tradition yeah. of struggle yeah. so i mean i mean we also had this question about uh, how nonviolence is often viewed as, you know, as something weak, as you know, the ruling class viewing nonviolence, nonviolent resistance as something that they don't have to worry about too much because it, there are not such high stakes um, uh, in that circumstance, but it is actually the opposite. There, it's, it's what the ruling class fears. It, it, is, it is so obvious that Gandhi was saying, that the two sides of this, at least, there's the anti-colonial struggle, the struggle against British colonialism, but then there is the struggle of India to transform itself. You know, that King was saying the same damn thing. It's not just a protest movement, it's a self-transformative movement. This um, killing and assassinating his characteristics and uh, you know, every, all of us don't grow under all of these um, principles till we till we start digesting them. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to, um, for that kind of salt, the salt that it, for me to understand them to go into a wound, and the wound is starting to be healed. But they don't realize where his place was in in his life as Muhammad. You know, he had a title that's come from the people that he's someone that is part of the soul of the nations. He's not just the soul of India. No, it's the soul of, no. of, of, our, of us as a nation, like the single garment that we had. Mm -hmm. But for, to um, misportray his, his inner person coming to the front mm -hmm. from where he came from, didn't start out this mission as who he was. He, he transformed in the mission and became who he was to the whole world. But to go back and attack him in essence, I'm reading about Washington 
So you so you got to start saying, well, I'm going to attack all the principles, but the principles, they exist no matter what color you are or where you stand in it. It's just it's calling something in, in you as your person because that's why it's so fearful for people to admit what they don't know and then they're ashamed to say, why would you say that? To, to get about um, um, Gandhi, but they don't really have the history of, of the movement inside of them. And they haven't digested what it is for somebody to transcend and say something that, that it not only alarmed America, it pushed the alarm on the whole world to, to, to stand up as human beings again. Right, and, and you know, just a small thing. I think we're gonna to have to take head on this claim that he was a castist and he upheld untouchability. We're gonna to have to go Just the at- the opposite. I mean, yeah. you actually spend the time to read him. Yeah, but we're gonna to have to make that argument, make it hard and consistent because this is a way of, just like they try to say King was a misogynist and just every, you know, uh, they go even further with Gandhi, but we have to, we have to, um, Take it head on. Oh God, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. I also wanted to say that we really, just a short last comment is that we really should, I mean, through this uh, reading collective, we should really work on making a syllabus so, for, 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 for you know, something as important as liberation itself yeah. and truth yeah. itself. Simply because you have like 10,000 courses which are teaching Yes. claiming to teach the this history and this uh, both in America, both in India. But I mean, you know, I mean, they have syllabi and it's all crap. <laughs> Sorry, we have to have but a syllabus. Teach, of course, they tell you not in just Google a syllabus. <laughs> Don't spend time on 15 minutes. You get one of these. Um, we're meeting. Yeah, we have been meeting since Andrew Murchison May now, in February, I think. More like April. I don't know. We, we started meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So I guess we're still planning the 10th anniversary for the preschool, um, which has come to hit a lot of questions. One of, uh, well, it's like we're trying to encompass all of which free school has done and what it is now. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to um, say that the free school not only almost function, I, I wanna say functions as, a, as an institution because, you know, we're doing the 10th anniversary of a group of people who've been meeting at the church of the advocate. Um, so I just want to say it like that. So we've been discussing a lot of different ways to formulate the questions that um, we consider at the at the three school, that of being art, um, revolutionary science, um, why do we study who we study as central figures like W. E. Du Bois, James Baldwin, and Martin Luther King. Um, we talked about this a lot today, um, the moral foundations of free schools and things like that, the philosophy and why is that important. Um, political education and also how is that the basis of any revolutionary kind of situation. 
and how is free school also initiating that? Those topics are basically what we've been discussing at our meetings that we have on Sundays. Go ahead, let me let, let Emily and then I was going to say something. Um, well, the only thing I wanted to add is I think the encompassing theme of the conversations and what we're hoping to assert 10th anniversary encompass is the question of what is, what is the scientific scientific method of revolutionary process mm -hmm. that the free school has developed for 10 for 10 years mm -hmm. and then like Tyson was saying how does it help us both identify understand but then solve the primary mm -hmm. questions of today mm -hmm. um which is at its deepest level also a crisis of knowledge yeah, yeah. and that's the title knowledge of the whole thing knowledge and the revolutionary spirit of our time mm -hmm. and um it's going to be two weekends the last weekend september and the first weekend in october mm -hmm. because we felt we had to have it like that because there's so much and uh, along with the questions that they have mentioned uh we were talking about panels or discussions on the pedagogy of the education of children and youth, political education of children and youth. And we want to emphasize youth and children because the attack is so targeted on them. Um, and um, and yeah, like uh, Emily mentioned, uh, the scientific, the science of the revolutionary process in the United States and a way for us to take the, you know, the early scientific um, uh, expressions of this, of the, of, of the revolutionary process and how um, Du Bois and Baldwin and King and others extended and deepened it to make it fit the US history. So, all of that, we've been talking about multiple venues, including the Asian Arts Initiative, Church of Crucifixion, Church of the Advocate, um, the Free Life Central Branch of the Free Library, uh, and the concert. I mean, the cultural. Oh, yeah, we, we're working on that to make it inter civilizational uh, and to go back to more traditional culture that imbibes the culture of resistance. So it's, if we can pull it off and we're working hard, uh, it, it can be a contribution to our people. That is our people, the whole people uh, in the movement forward. And, you know, again, we start from the assumption of let's give the working class the greatest opportunity. We're not here to put the working people down, you know, so that's it. Can I do some, some last things? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, there, there's a, a rich discussion happening in the comments, or there was at a certain point, but I'm not going to read all of it, just Please some, do. Some, some highlights. Um, so Cornelius Lockett says, the struggle for abortion rights appears disruptive, and I see this issue making this nation essentially an un-United States, so dividing the country. Mm -hmm. And Daryl Wasteland Mitchell says, 
the new front of struggle cutting across old ideological trends of anti-war, pro-abortion, and pro-woman issues. Transgender ideology is objectively fascist in my view. It is telling that Kissinger is, quote, to the left of jail Amal Joe Biden, new world relations are present today, real communist. Uh, Daryl Wasteland Mitchell. Um, Cornelius Lockett said, in response to the transgender uh, sentence said, well, we all have a view. The issue is whether that view can be articulated. Um, Danny says, capitalism makes people superfluous. So the replacement theory, at least, seems to make sense to some people, even if it is a misrecognition, a necessary one. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is why leadership is so important. Mm -hmm. um, and Cornelius says, um, yes, as the brother said, Biden is quoted as applauding the browning of America. Of course, some whites will react negatively to that. Um, your point about leadership needs to be elaborated. Um, Jeremiah's point about the assumption that the country will become more democratic party, leaning is spot on and adopted by much of the left. Uh, and then taking a different turn, Nathan Brazo yeah. says, I never realized how much violence or the thought of violence pervades every aspect of life in the society. Going down to the South and meeting the beautiful trusting people of the Delta shocked me because I came cautious and on guard. I couldn't understand why they were so loving and trustful of us. I think the spirit of the freedom movement and the reckoning of history and how to live with people of another race is something that the North hasn't fully had. We definitely need the spirit of King again in the North and South to be revived for the spirit of peace and brotherhood at home and abroad. And then he ends by saying that the people in the South and the Delta disarmed me with their love. Um, and then Stephen Palmier contributes to the conversation about culture by adding on to what we were saying about Kendrick is a proletarian superhero <laughs> who is untethered to any class consciousness. Um, and then he says that art means channeling truth to dispel myths. Um, and then he says that Kendrick, I think he's saying that Kendrick is a put down of class consciousness. Um, and then he also mentions the, the great migration. And he says that the great migration that Jacob Lawrence channels truth by holding struggle as a class interest oriented activity it dispels the myth of the impotent masses, mm -hmm. migration being a powerful tactic for class struggle. Um, and then it says it goes down to authentic versus artifice. Um, primitive translates to immature pejoratively when they assign that label to black artists. Mm -hmm. so I think that's all the comments. Well, next week we are definitely going to start with, uh, the introduction yeah, to the yeah. science of life. What's happening in the world? Yeah, yeah, the world, the world is 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 forcing us.